0: Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Likeville comes from two places: sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Likeville, you can find our patreon at patreon.com/likevillepodcast. Again, that's patreoncom Podcast. The second wave of support, comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, A night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer.
1: Today, we're going to be talking with philosopher Daniel Weinstock. Daniel Weinstock, this is his second time on the podcast, and some of the- Hopefully not the last. <laughs> Definitely not the last. Uh, welcome, Daniel. Yeah, great to be here. So uh, a lot of things we have to talk about, but definitely, as I said, um, first thing we got to talk about is the collected collection of essays that you and Andrew Potter just came out with called "High Time" on the legalization of marijuana in Canada. So, um, what did you? I mean, I. when I saw that you were going to do that, I thought it was kind of interesting because you're not really a weed enthusiast yourself at all. Well, you know, uh,
2: life is long, right? Uh, <laughs>
1: But so, what? Uh, I mean, what kind of things do you explore in the book? So, so, so I, I decided to do something on on weed
2: legalization because, well, as you know, I, I run this institute at McGill called the Institute for Health and Social Policy, and one of the things that uh, you know is the is the bread and butter of the institute is topics where you really need to look at something from a whole range of different academic, disciplinary perspectives to make sense of it. And, you know, I realized when I started thinking about weed, you know, you think about it, weed legalization, at the at first glance, seems simple, right? Something is illegal on whatever, October 16th? At midnight, October 17th, voila, it becomes legal. But in fact, you know, the way that we decided to do it here in Canada, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot more complicated because we didn't just – for better or for worse, and we can talk about that. Invite all of the people who are presently still, you know, in, involved in the in the gray to black market, uh, you know, into the legal market, and say, hey, you know, uh, welcome. You are now legal uh, merchants. We decided to create a parallel stream. Right. Where from production to distribution, uh, you know, there's a legal uh, stream that is not bringing in people who are formerly in the illegal uh, stream. So that involves uh, uh, all kinds of things uh, to do with, uh, oh, you know, just to pick one example out of a out of a hat. Are we going to treat it more like alcohol, which is to say, you know, um, we want to regulate it. We definitely want to, don't want to advertise it to kids, but we do advertise it, right? We do, uh, you know, make it uh, available to people uh, in, in, our, in our sort of landscape as something that's kind of fun to do in moderation. Or are we going to treat it more like tobacco, which is something that it would be impossible to make illegal now, but we probably would if we could, right? So we don't advertise it anymore. We don't allow uh, uh, tobacco companies to sponsor. Events, uh, you know, if you buy a pack of cigarettes now, you've got diseased lungs and you know the most disgusting pictures you could possibly imagine, um, h- hidden behind you know uh, uh, walls that you can't even see the product. So, what are we going to do? Are we going to treat cannabis a little bit more like tobacco? Or- I'm trying to
1: imagine what the images for marijuana It'd be like—a guy with like unwashed hair sitting in a bathrobe watching Netflix on lots the couch. Of, yeah, <laughs> lots of Doritos.
2: You want to be yeah. cross marketing with the Doritos. <laughs> so so there's a lot of you know there's there, there are a lot of questions and they're questions of regulation right so um, you know again just to think uh, just to think about uh, the one that concerned me the most um, so when Justin Trudeau went out on the campaign trail to say that we were going to legalize marijuana, his selling point right was we got to protect the kids we got to protect the kids, so how does the legalization of marijuana actually Protect kids. Uh, Marijuana is a young person's drug. All the statistics show that uh, you know basically the bulk of people are really uh, having you know are consuming marijuana between about sixteen and twenty five. What are the what are what are we putting in place in order to to protect kids? You know, does it mean that we're going to try to enforce a prohibition, keep it out of their hands, or does it mean that we're going to give them access to the legal safer stuff? Right. Um, And there's been a debate about that in uh, in um, in Quebec and in Canada. How are we going to um, ensure road safety. So we have, for alcohol, we have technology that allows us to detect uh, levels of uh, alcohol that correlate pretty cleanly with levels of impairment, right? Yeah. With uh, THC, uh, the active ingredient in cannabis, uh, you can have traces of THC in your bloodstream well beyond, well beyond.
1: It's unbelievably persistent. It's like one of the most persistent. That's, that's it's, right. It's I wild. probably
2: still have THC in my system from that Grateful Dead concert I went to like in 1982
1: or <laughs> something. <cetera. laughs> I don't know if it's that long, but I I know for drug testing the, in important the States, point, it's really persistent. The important yeah.
2: point is that, is that is that there's no correlation between oh, the level the of THC that you have in okay. your blood and impairment. And really what you care about is impairment. Yeah. So what do we do about that? You know, Clearly, we don't want to have people... Uh, driving around, uh, high, you know, I'm not part of the, I don't, I don't pres- subscribe to the I drive better when I'm stoned school oh, of uh, road safety. Yeah. But we also don't want to be uh, treating everybody who has the slightest, uh, trace of THC in their blood indiscriminately in the same way. So how are we going to deal with that? So, you know, I could go on just. Talking about the different questions yeah. that are uh, out well, what there. What
1: do you deal with? I mean, I ordered the book, but it hasn't good, arrived good. yet. As, uh, but as uh, should all of you? Yeah, they should all order. it. But what about the people that are in jail, right, because of uh, marijuana right. offenses, right? right? Like I, right. I, you know, I, I asked him if I, if I could mention this on the air, and he said okay, just to leave his name out of it, but. But I ran into one of my former students, um, who's a police officer now, because you know John Abbott is uh, sure. the big biggest police tech program in Quebec, and uh, the he was really 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 upset uh, about about this, uh, not because he thinks it's wrong, but but because of uh, something that happened. Okay, um, when he was at John Abbott uh, in the police tech program, they. Uh, did like a sort of Miami Vice type sting operation, where there were people like selling, uh, selling weed like on campus, and they were smoking and stuff like that, and they um, were in plain clothes and they were working with the police. So these police tech students were playing cop before they were actually right uh, police officers. And in this like little operation, one of the people that was. Um, that was arrested was somebody that he had known since kindergarten that he went to school with and he had been friends with him. And this friend was so completely, uh, you know, like angry at him and said, this is ridiculous. Like, you're my friend. Like, why would you do this? And he said, he rationalized that to himself and to other people by saying that marijuana was, this dangerous thing that it's not good for you and that it's illegal and, you know, that we have to obey the law. It's a good thing. He goes, and now it's just been legalized. Right. So I feel like I had a lot of misgivings about doing this in the first place. Right. I did it. I lost friends over it, including one of my oldest friends who was a good friend. Uh, And now now it's, you know, legal. Yeah. And so now I just feel so unbelievably stupid. Right. Like, I just don't understand, like... And what happened? So he he asked me. He's like, "What happens to all the people that are in jail that have criminal records right. because of this?" Right.
2: So so that so we we the answer we actually don't have an article about that. You know, Miguel Queens gave us a two hundred and forty page limit. Yeah. Uh, and but I think it's a really I wish we did because um, so so here's the um, it's a live question now. Um, so there are a number of ways to to go about it. You know, legalization can't leave, I think everybody agrees, can't leave everything that happened before untouched. It's got to make a difference to what happened before. You're basically saying that if a person who did something, you know, a week before legalization had done it a week after, they would have gone, away, gone off scot-free. Even now, you know… Um, The only legal cannabis is the cannabis that you buy at the Société Québécoise du Cannabis in Quebec. But if you get caught with um, stuff that you didn't buy there, you're not going to get a criminal record anymore. You're going to get a ticket, you know, like like a parking sort of violation. It's not going to go into a criminal record. So there seems something terribly arbitrary in the fact that there were people being arrested and going up on criminal charges up until the moment of legalization. And then after legalization, even the people who get caught with illegal stuff are not being uh, prosecuted. Now, um, you know, this goes back to a, so, so the debate is do we, well, doing nothing I think was never really an option. Telling all the people who got busted before, you know, you're just out of luck, was not really an option. There are two basic ways that you can go about it. You can um, expunge people's records, which is the the more extreme way of going about it, which means it's as if it never happened. If anybody were to look at your... Uh, record, an employer or insurer or whatever, they would see nothing, right? It was as if it it never happened. And then there are things like pardons, right? Where uh, your, your record is still present, but as it were, it is overlaid by this other kind of device. Now, a lot of advocates have been saying that legalization should mean that we expunge, right? We are now recognizing in a sense that the criminalization was wrong. We were criminalizing something that we shouldn 't have criminalized, and so almost by logical deduction, all the people who are um, who, who are who are in jail or who have criminal records should have those completely erased. Other people will say something slightly different, and you know i mean i think there's a I, you know i think I, I am of the expunging i think we should we should probably just because, you know, um, going around with a criminal record uh, for something that we now recognize uh, is something that, that, that is a shackle in people's lives. Right? Yeah. It affects their lives adversely, even after they have finished their sentence or, or done whatever community service they've – st- it still shackles shackles their lives needlessly, right? Needlessly. Here's a, here's another argument, um, a couple of arguments that people will make to say, well, hang on a second, not so quick. First of all, um, you know, I think that the the – the rationale for the legalization of marijuana in Canada is not the rationale that you might have had in the 60s or 70s, right? Which is um, let people do what they want. Let adults, you know, uh, the father of uh, our present uh, premier is famous for saying, you know, uh, the, the state has no business in the bedrooms of uh, the nation. He was thinking about uh, homosexuality. Mm-hmm. But you could imagine him thinking, you know, non, here's an act that has no, you know, no third parties are being harmed. Let people do what they want. If they want to smoke some weed, let them smoke some weed. And, you know, persistent rumors would have it that he himself was a, uh, you know, somebody who who was not insensitive to uh, the charms of the occasional toque. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the rationale today is quite different. The rationale is this is harmful. This is a harmful substance. But – Paradoxically, uh, the best way in which to minimize the harm associated with the substance is not to criminalize it. Criminali- criminalization has just been proven to be an enormous failure. Right? Um,
1: it's a huge money maker for organized crime. It's, it's yeah. basically
2: created uh, the cartels. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it has cost. You know, the, the numbers of lives that have been cost that have been uh, sacrificed the war on drugs is is, is enormous. But it also just doesn't work. I mean, anybody who lives in Montreal knows that before (laughs) October 17th, you know, it wasn't like you would have any trouble finding uh, cannabis. And it wasn't. Go to the
1: statue of Mount Royal and there's there's the guys sitting there selling it all day long. You know,
2: I remember remember, uh, being on the mountain once for Tam Tam Jam years ago where, you know, there were people smoking in plain sight with cops hassling and ticketing the people who were showing up with their homemade empanadas for sale right i mean you don't have a license to sell <laughs> your your empanadas that's that's something we need to crack down on but yeah. you know the the people who are smoking weed sort of around them they were not so uh you know it's not as if an official prohibition is actually going to lead to anything you know re, you know people sort of laugh about it so 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 this the sense is not you know the rationale for legalization is not you know people should be allowed to do what they want if they want to It's not
1: a libertarian rationale libertari- it's a harm reduction it's, rationale absolutely.
2: it's not a libertarian rationale it's a harm reduction rationale Yeah It's still a harm right we're still but uh, the best way to do it is to bring it up up above board and regulate it Now in many ways I think that that's the right of, you know the the that the, the, the you know it it is especially the uh, the marijuana that uh, is – is is around today much more potent than the marijuana which would have been widely available when I was an adolescent and there's more research to indicate that you know if you can you probably want to uh you know forestall right uh the be- people beginning to smoke marijuana into their 20s or something like that but the fact is you can't right you cannot the cat's out of the bag. The train's left the station. Whatever metaphor you want to uh, you want to use, uh, the networks of uh, supply and distribution are so well dug in that um, you know uh, it, it would take. I don't know what it would take. It would take an investment of resources that is just in, impossible uh, in order to to shut that down. So, um, so you know, the rationale is not. We now recognize that what uh, these people did before was okay, was fine, was great. Therefore, they should have their records expunged because we now recognize that what they did was okay. It's rather, it's still not okay. We've just chosen a different mechanism uh, to uh, regulate it. And going back to one of the questions that, you know, I was amongst the myriad questions that uh, we didn't really know the answers to until legalization occurred. It's clear that in that spectrum, going from alcohol on the one hand, uh, you know, it's fine when used uh, in moderation. We can advertise it, uh, show people having fun while having a drink, uh, <laughs> to tobacco, right, where we sell it, but we basically do everything we can to deter. We're probably closer to the tobacco road, um, isn't that a Steve Earle song. Uh <laughs> we're probably closer to the Tobacco Road than we are to the the Alcohol Road, right? So, I don't know if you've been into one of the SQDCs. I haven't. Um, one of I'm the not three, not
1: really into so, weeds. one yeah. of the three.
2: Well, you know, we, yeah. for research purposes.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Um they're 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 sterile, right? They are um, you know, um the thing that immediately came to mind, you're probably too young to remember this, but um you know, they're like uh, the, the old Ontario alcohol stores where there was no alcohol on the shelves. You know, basically had to write something down. There's also a kind of store. I don't know. This is the first image that came into my head. When I, was, when I was a kid, there was a place called Consumers Distributing. Are you old? Enough I remember that. They had a catalog. Yes. Right? And you used to yeah. go and you used to write down what you wanted, but there were no oh products.
1: My God. I, I literally have not thought of that. In like twenty years, well, I think. Welcome, yeah. Welcome, welcome to. There was one like right next. There was consumers distributing right next to Pascal's. I remember like there that. was
2: one in Cote uh, in the Cote shopping center. Um, so it's very, so it's very anti, it's antiseptic, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there was no no appeal to it, right? You the the appeal was in the catalog, I guess. But uh, so it feels a little bit like that. They're definitely not, um, you know, trying to um, how should I put it? They're not trying to encourage you to. Uh, to buy and the packaging is also very um sober and uh not sexy and uh so all this to say uh the first argument to be to you know is is um it's not that we're saying that this is okay we're saying that it's still not okay by and large but we're going to regulate it in a different way because we recognize that prohibition was didn't work the second argument and this is like you know deep philosophy of law argument is um There is a difference between then and now. Then you broke the law, right? Uh, We change the laws all the time, right? um you know the the speed limit on my street has changed probably you know five times since we've been there um you know and when it was 50 when it was 50 it was okay to drive to, to 50 um you know now that it's 30 you know driving for you know the we change laws all the time and what we're supposed to do uh, unless the laws are egregiously unjust in which case we start talking about you know the legitimacy of civil disobedience and things like that uh, unless the laws are egregiously unjust we have have an obligation to obey the law. And the difference between then and now is that somebody who sold or, you know, smoked uh, weed uh, until what was it October 16th, 2018 was breaking what was not an egregiously, you know, unjust law. It's, m- criminalizing marijuana is ineffective. Uh, you know, it's 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 it, it, like a lot of laws, uh, you know, and, and laws that that we know after a while we can't enforce are probably best written out of the books. But um, you know, you can't say that it was uh you know, an unjust law like, you know, racial segregation or or, <laughs> or denying women the right to vote or something like that. So so that would be the argument on the side of the people who say, hold on a second, right? Um there is still a reason to keep a trace of what you did on your record um uh even though we think that you know that, that should not have quite the effect that it would have if you had a you know like a, a, a breaking and entering rap on your on your uh, on your record or something like that so i personally am in favor of expunging but i can see why people would say let's not go quite that far down the road
1: i would say in general i as a as a sort of philosophy of law, I agree with the the analogy to the speed limit on your street that yeah. that was the law then and you broke the law. In general, I would agree with that. But in this particular instance, I actually think that was an unjust law. I think it was immoral to ever have it. I, I don't think it's, I mean, it's good to sort of Get rid of the law for the reasons that you said you know right. that that it actually creates all this crime and all these problems and stuff, but I also think it's just it's absurd to have a law that tells you like you know that you what an adult can do with like a substance you know in their own home right. it seems like like you should be able to to make your to, to do yeah. that i mean if you're gonna start operating you know vehicles. Under the influence, then yeah, then it's my problem. It's society's problem. But if you're at home just and you're changing your state of consciousness, like why
2: not? (laughs) Which is why I added the, you know, I mean, you and I might, so I believe that all laws that, um, you know, victimless crimes, basically, crimes of, you know, sort of that enforce a, a, a community's more sense of moral outrage about people's behavior rather than regulating the way that our behavior impacts. Other people, yeah. like all those things should be out of – we should not criminalize any of that, right? Yeah, so, I totally agree. Uh, so, yeah, law, you know,
1: law is should be about helping us to get along with each other. With each other. And so, and,
2: and very often, you know, and this is the case with drugs um, – and by the way, we're just talking about marijuana, right? The young yeah. liberals, uh, you know, put forward at their policy convention last year uh, a proposal for basically – you know, doing more or less the same with all drugs. And that was beaten down by the uh, leadership in, in, you know, in a in, in, uh, batting of an eyelash. Right. That's not going to happen anytime soon.
1: Like Portugal did.
2: Portugal decriminalized so so the there's a por, Portugal at this conference and it's in the book we actually have a uh, the, an essay by the by the gentleman who was one of the architects of the Portuguese law um oh wow, I really really want to read yeah, this well you know, yeah I really wow so what what he was at pains to to you know a lot of people say we're going to legalize just like Portugal, and he was at pains to remind us that portugal it's still illegal it's just not criminal right so They're not going to enforce you if they catch you with under a certain amount. They're not going to enforce any, any laws. Uh, They're not going to give you more than a, they might give you a ticket, but there is still, you know, they're, they're, they're treating it really like a public health problem. Right. Um, So a public health problem is one where if you catch somebody who's using a lot of drugs, you're not just going to say, you know, go and, you know, you're doing something uh, in the privacy of your own home that we should allow you to do. They will treat you like someone who is ill. And um, and they have, you know, semi-coercive ways of getting you into therapy um, to uh, you know to 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 get over it. Now, again, if they find you, you know, if you're smoking a joint on in you know, a public square, you're not going to get anybody bothering you. But um, you know, uh, addiction is treated like the public health problem that it is, and people are not just left free to do what they will, as it were, uh, but rather than putting, being put behind bars, they are being treated. So uh, decriminalization means still illegal, but not within the ambit of the criminal law, whereas we've gone you know, narrowly just with marijuana, just with cannabis, uh, and not with all cannabis products yet, right? The the legalization applies just to the flower, the flower, and to certain kinds of uh, you know uh, sprays. Uh, but there are no edibles, for example. Um, oh, still- I didn't know
1: that. Not yet. Not yet. Oh
2: wow. They're worried about uh, kids. Um, yeah. You know, thinking. Uh, well, I
1: mean, have you seen the the edibles? Like I I had some. Uh, I had some with with uh, with Albert Nuremberg we were like we were like and we we had in there like little gummy bears. Yeah. And they really they taste exactly like gummy bears. They look just like gummy bears. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, at some point some, some idiot yeah. is gonna put these in baggies and give them out on Halloween. Halloween. So and so like you could you know you could induce a pretty severe uh, psychotic episode in a kid. It's not something you want to do. It'd be, it'd be do. horrible for like twenty four hours that kid would be really miserable. It's not something you
2: want to do. And so, yeah. so they're still trying to figure out um, you know, how to package them, how to how to, you know, what what, what tastes, you know, what flavors uh they can make legal. You don't want to make them too uh too candy like, right? Yeah. Uh, uh so that's but that I think that's going to make them
1: taste like chopped liver or something. Or
2: yeah. <laughs> but I think we're months away from, from having um but yeah, so we've we've decided to go a slightly different road. There's no prospect of this being extended to other drugs um, you know, anytime soon. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's legalization rather than decriminalization applied to a very limited uh, substance, which, you know, uh, begs a number of questions, right? Uh, part of the the, the main reason, uh, the main harm that we wanted to reduce uh, through legalization was uh, the criminalization of the drug trade, right, with all of its attendant uh, uh, risks. I remember something that resonated with me as a parent, you know, when Justin Trudeau was on the campaign trail was, you know, we don't want the only contact that our kids have have with a criminal element uh to be when they go out and buy weed right it seems like too much risk to impose on uh an adolescent who's doing something basically harmless that they should consort with a criminal element in order to buy weed um uh so uh I lost my train of thought uh,
1: well i mean i know that in um in verdun with my old friends in verdun and stuff like that some of them who are like have connections to that world. Right. They they said people are just freak. People were freaking out. They said this was you know because if, if you look at what happened when Prohibition ended, right? When Prohibition ended, it just it hobbled organized crime in the United States. Oh, they mean. lost right. so much money. So so the, you know?
2: the, the question the, you know the, the concern that I have. You you allowed me to re, re- yeah. my train, train of thought um, uh, as a good host should. Yeah. Uh, so you know. Organized crime is not going to go... As it were, when alcohol was legalized again... Uh, They didn't say, okay, we're just I don't think we're just going to legalize beer and wine. But spirits are still illegal. Right. The whole kit and caboodle uh, went from being illegal to being legal. Uh, Think of what would have happened if they'd done uh, if they'd said, okay, beer and wine, anything under whatever, 15 uh, percent uh, is legal, but everything else is still illegal. Well, that would have been great for organized crime because they could have kept on uh, producing rye and whiskey and what have you. In a sense, we've done something kind of like that second scenario that I've just described. Um, You know, weed is now something that you can, if you're over 18, and this is something that I do want to touch on uh, because I think it's one of the craziest aspects of the ways that we've chosen to regulate it. There's a law before the National Assembly, a bill before the National Assembly, which will, uh, if it is successful, and there's no reason to think it won't be because the government has a majority, uh, that would raise the legal age um, in Quebec to 21. Um, So- For
1: marijuana. For marijuana, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah.
2: So we'll, we'll go back to talk about that, but
1: you know, uh, so a lot of lot of like I, I can see the logic behind it because the brain's not fully formed right. until about twenty five. That's right, and there is proven. I know you weed smokers hate it when I say this, but there is actually very solid evidence that it uh it's not so good for the brain of a young person
2: it's not so good for the brain but the point the point i want to get back to that because uh you know I think that that's really uh the most difficult uh policy decision uh we have to make to do with how are we going to protect the 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 young and I think we've gone about it the wrong way, but the point I wanted to make is that uh you know organized crime to the extent that we you know motivate this uh policy by the desire to de criminalize right the drug trade well all we've done is gotten rid or you know taken the the equivalent of beer and wine out of their uh you know drug business but left them uh completely you know full free reign over the you know the the whiskeys the ryes, and the gins right uh so my concern as a parent and as a citizen is um you know, will the people who have been selling weed to our kids now just turn around and say, well, you know, we'll just have to get them um, used to buying, um, you know, meth or, uh, you know.
1: No, it won't. It won't. Uh, I don't think it'll work. I got to be careful what I say here on air. But, uh, but OK, the like typical like drug delivery service, um, speaking hypothetically, um, in like the Plateau or in Verdun, uh, they'll have – They'll have like a central. It's like a taxi service or like calling for takeout, and they have like a, a central phone number. People call in, you order, right, uh, and then they come. They come to your house, and they have pretty much uh, everything on them, right? And if you ask like pretty much anybody who's worked for one of those services, they'll tell you that in a in a given night, you know, you probably ninety percent of your sales, your total amount of sales, is for weed. Right. Right? And, like, everything else, like uh, ecstasy, speed, uh, you know, shrooms, uh, they will, most delivery services will, like, not even touch uh, meth or heroin. So, so they won't touch it. So this actually is going to... It is hitting them very, very hard.
2: You're making an assumption that I would contest there, which is that uh, there's no elasticity. There's no uh, changeability to the demand, right? Uh, You know – we didn't have diet soft drinks uh you know uh, until about 40 years ago and now diet soft drinks soft drinks are the biggest share of the soft drink market um you know it's not like there was a repressed soft drink desire <laughs> that you know all of a sudden got uh oh we should sell these people you know uh when when they it was it was essentially created by a change in the market people started being worried about the amount of sugar in regular soft drinks so rather than just conceding and saying well i guess we won't be selling as many soft drinks as we used to uh, a new product was created and uh um you know a desire for it was carefully uh, uh sort of cultivated um in in the consumer so you know i i'm not sure that um you know i still worry that um by by focusing on cannabis as if it were this uniquely you know it's it's the, it's the and as you say it it isn't as safe as people sort of think it is especially not for the people who are most likely to want to consume it which is yeah. the kids um you know um it's not as safe as people think it, think it is uh and so the idea that it kind of occupies this ontologically distinct sphere in drugdom, you know, uh, such that it's okay to legalize it, but we wouldn't dream of doing it for, you know, for heroin or for uh uh for cocaine or for uh anything else, I think rests on just a weird set of assumptions and may lead to uh you know uh uh our inability to do what we said we'd do, which is to take a substantial chunk out of the illegal um Illegal drug trade. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I want to get back to the thing that, that I want to, I don't want us to, to leave. Uh, so I have a paper in the book where I make uh, the suggestion, which so far I can assure you has gained no traction <laughs> amongst the political class here or anywhere, which is that um, rather than raising the age, uh, the legal age from 18 to 21, as our government here proposes, we should actually consider, not necessarily do it, but we should open the, open ourselves to the possibility of lowering it. Uh, Say to sixteen, and the argument is this: um, you know the, the kids are both most vulnerable to the harmful effects of cannabis but also most likely to wanna consume cannabis. So if you look at uh if you if you if you put a chart with um drug use a, across uh uh the age categories next to one with alcohol, right? You find that uh cannabis is kind of like an inverted U, right? So uh people will start smoking marijuana around 15-16, uh but a 25 very sharp sharp drop off. Now, is that an artifact of the fact that until 6 months ago or 7 months ago it was illegal and at 25 people start, you know, worrying a little bit more perhaps than they did about doing illegal things, or is it something about the nature of the experience of smoking marijuana or consuming marijuana uh, itself that is less attractive uh, when you're uh, older than you know? When you're oh, born?
1: I would say, I would say, absolutely, absolutely, B. I think you're right. I, absolutely, I, no. I mean, I, everybody I know who stopped smoking, uh, they stop smoking because that particular state of consciousness is just not. For most people, some people can like handle it yeah. in a way that kind of amazes me, but I know like when I'm stoned, I, I, I can't. I'm not thinking in a way that's conducive to looking after young children, right. Or and having takes, an adult life. Like I can't. For I, a lot of
2: people it takes it takes a while. You know, you you even if the high wears off. You know, the, the 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 brunt of it wears off after a few hours. The lingering effects,
1: the sort of sluggishness, yeah. might still be something. My brain ahead. is not sharp when I'm stoned, yeah. Which, Which I guess or, is the or, point. Or I guess or two, yeah. a
2: day or two afterwards, yeah. you know. So, so, so the paradox of uh, so whereas alcohol, you know, people start you know drinking around the same age, but by and large there isn't the leveling off, right? Uh, uh, for for marijuana, the Statistics Canada figures that I saw, which you know again, require um, require self-reporting. So how much are people actually going to be uh, admitting to doing something which was until recently illegal? Was that by the time you get into my age group, right? It's around ten percent of the of of people who have who have who admit to having uh, consumed marijuana in the previous year, right? That Some sounds were- about right. Yeah,
1: like if I think like of my friends and family, like that sounds about ten yeah. percent sounds about right,
2: and it's about triple that in the In the younger age uh, category, so uh, you have people who are who are most likely to want to consume it for whom it is also the most harmful right so um, so what do you do about that so that's w- when you were saying there's a prima facie logic to wanting to raise the age of uh, of of you know the age at which you can consume it to twenty one why not twenty five right when the brain uh, really stops developing um, I mean, the the problem is that is entirely dependent upon our our ability to enforce the prohibition, right, to to effectively enforce the prohibition. I mean, the tragic, uh, ironic, you know, outcome of all of this is that, you know, people 25 and older, 21 and older, whatever, uh, have access to safe, controlled, unadulterated uh, cannabis that has been, you know – meticulously uh overseen from seed to store <laughs> right uh no so and 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 with which you you have absolutely meticulous information provided so you know what the composition is uh you know the level of THC and of uh, uh CBD you know down to the 0.1 you know uh, so you can make really
1: informed
2: Purchasing this like,
1: like a wine list, yeah. it almost is. And, yeah, you know,
2: you have you have people uh, there who will explain to you, you know, the difference between buying a combustible form of cannabis or something that comes in a gel cap. You know how long it'll take. You can get a really really high level of information, and you're absolutely guaranteed of not having uh, any contaminant. You know any uh, anything in the product that is that is dangerous above and beyond uh, the the you know the, the dangerousness of the drug itself. So the paradox would be that, you know, adults above 21 are going to have access to this extremely safe product, and the kids are still going to be getting the same variable, right? Risky. Not necessarily that everything that is bought in the street is dangerous. Far from it. But you have less information, more risk, right? If the whole point was to protect kids, unless we can enforce a prohibition, and like I said, you know, given the amount of... uh, marijuana that's out there, given how dug in the networks are, the distribution networks, uh, the production networks and the distribution networks, it would take um, uh, a feat of endorsement, of, of enforcement, right, of, of, of uh, Herculean proportions in order to beat that back. Now, if we decided to uh, bring the age down, you know, I think we could actually make it less worth the while of dealers, if you're taking away, uh, you know, the, 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 that big fat middle of the demand curve, uh, from the, uh, illegal market, then you have a chance at, uh, basically having them say, you know what, it's not worth, uh, our while anymore. But if you're basically handing, you know, the 18 to 21s or the 16 to 21s back to them, then it's completely in their interest to continue being part of, uh, to continue, uh, uh, being in in the marketplace that uh, actually
1: makes perfect sense. It's a weird argument, but it makes perfect sense.
2: Well, you know, it's a harm reduction argument, right? Yeah. Uh, let's uh, you know the first best case, and let's assume that for people who are under a certain age, the first best case is let's keep it out of their hands, right? We're both parents. Yeah. Uh, we know that that first best case is just not likely to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you
1: can't be watching them all the time, and you shouldn't be anyway.
2: And so, you know, what is the next best case? The next best case is ensuring that if they're gonna then let it be something that is uh, safe. Let it be something about which there's inf- uh, information, and let it be something where the state could even use things like um, pricing policy in order to nudge kids towards uh, a safer, uh, a safer pro- a safer legal product. Look, I mean, you know, I remember my my teenage years. You know, pretty much everybody at some point or other, experimented with pot more for social reasons but than because they wanted to get completely wasted, right? Yeah. Uh, some did, you know, don't yeah. get me wrong. But, you know, I would say that, I don't know, uh, a good proportion of people didn't want to say no just because they didn't want to be ostracized from the group. And maybe a little bit of a of a light buzz is something that they were looking for. If you use the pricing policy that you have to make the sort of uh less potent uh marijuana attractive because cheaper uh for 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 younger people there's another way in which you can reduce the harm right uh again uh you know uh people misunderstand the argument when I make it. you mean you think it's a good thing that you know kids should? no it's a bad thing uh, that's but, not what
1: I hear you saying uh right. you
2: know the, here we go back to something i think very very deeply you know people's relationship to the law which is if something is bad, it should be illegal right uh it should be illegal you know that, that's the first thing we say right now, the criminal law is one amongst a big sort of palette of tools that we have at our disposal to regulate the bads in society and it's it's a very it's a very coarse grained tool right once you've made something criminally illegal, you can't regulate it right? You can't say to someone what you're doing is Um, criminal. If we catch it, we'll put you in jail. Oh, and by the way, can you be sure that when you sell it, it has no more than a certain, you know, that thing that comes after the oh, by the way, is something you can only do with a product that is Legal, Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but it is very, very difficult. And I think that's why the, 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 our government's, um, sort of very stringent regulations that are going to come into effect if uh, they don't see the light of day, uh, if they don't uh, see reason, uh, hear uh, reason, uh, resonate with some people, you know, they think that cannabis is bad and let's, let's give them the, the, the benefit of the doubt or the, let's admit it for the sake of argument. Therefore, it should be illegal. It should be criminal. There's the uh, sort of the jump in logic that doesn't follow, and yet it's very, very seductive. It's very, very hard to get people around to the idea that something that they disapprove of is better regulated by making it legal. Legal means approval, doesn't it? No, not necessarily. And uh, I think we're we're struggling against that in my argument about. You know, if we can't enforce a prohibition, let's at least give our kids access to uh, safer uh, cannabis. Doesn't gain traction because people hear uh, you're approving of um, you're approving of of kids yeah. uh, smoking. Cannabis.
1: Well, I know my my mom had that attitude towards towards drinking when uh, when I was a teenager. Like her attitude, and there were a couple of the other moms in the neighborhood who had the same idea. Their attitude was like, "Look, they're gonna do it." they're going to have parties and they're going to drink uh, anyway. Um, so, but we don't want them to be doing it down by the river Absolutely. because they're going to be outside and they're going to, they can hurt themselves. They they cars. end up, they can, uh, you know, the police come and like pick them up and then they get in trouble with like the cops mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And we don't want like that. We don't want them doing it in like abandoned buildings and like Point St. Charles and stuff like that. So they, what they would do is, uh, hi, mom. <laughs> She's probably like, yeah, I'm ratting you out here. Uh, so what they would do is they would basically, uh, like for if I was going to have like a party when I was like 17, 17 years old, or I think the first time I was allowed was when I was 16. If I was going to have a party, uh, I would like set the place all of her party. And then uh, my mom would go to like my Aunt Gail's house or, or would go. So she would have plausible deniability. Right. Right. And she would be close by so that if anybody got hurt or there was a problem, it'd be like, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. You can come and knock and, ah, like, yeah. you know, something. Nothing bad ever happened. But if there was an emergency, she's right by. Yeah, yeah. But she has plausible deniability. And that way she knows that it's happening in a safer environment. And there were some parents who said, well, so what you're condoning like underage drinking. And she said, no, I'm not. She basically made exactly the same argument you're making. She said, no, I'm not condoning drinking. I know there it's going to happen one way or the other. And so I would rather it happen in a safer environment.
2: That's the harm reduction. It's home style harm reduction policy. And it makes a lot of, uh, it makes a lot of sense. um, yeah, no, absolutely. but it
1: bumps up against the the moralists, I guess, or it a bumps, certain kind of yeah.
2: It bumps up against the moralists, but it does lead to. Uh you know, to 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 bad policy, it leads to, well, in the drug case, it leads to the people who are most likely to consume uh, the drug being back in the hands, essentially, of organized crime and of the riskier product that's out there. I mean, in another area, it leads to sex workers uh, working in far more unsafe conditions uh, than they uh, would if we just... Um, you know did what a lot of countries like germany or states in australia have done which is to to legalize and regulate um you know to legalize and regulate again not because you're affirming you know the you're not some kind of you know nex- necessarily sexual liberationist saying that mm-hmm. this is this is wonderful uh but recognizing that it is you know the oldest profession in the uh in the world and that um you know if you want to protect the people who are most vulnerable who in this case are uh mostly women but not always women but mostly women who uh who are the 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 you know in this case the uh the the producers of the of the good uh driving the whole industry underground um is the worst way of uh of, of protecting them it's making them subject to uh, the will and whim of uh you know the most rapacious uh, people out there whereas uh being grown up about it and re- realizing that uh, people are gonna do it and uh, therefore you know let's set up safe surroundings for people to to do it would be much more uh much more effective in terms of minimizing harms but Hitting up against this sort of moralistic streak, which is we disapprove of it, and therefore it should be illegal.
1: Yeah, I remember I was shocked when Annalise and I lived in Amsterdam for a little while. I remember being shocked. We we met a lot of people who were born and raised in Amsterdam, very you know, fascinating people. They had never smoked weed in their lives. Yeah. Like ever. Yeah. And, you know, this is, you, you think of Amsterdam as this, and they also had never been to the red light district right. in their lives. Right. They were quite uh, sort of personally kind of conservative, upright, yeah. uh, not, I didn't get the impression that they were moralistic. It's just, it's sort of like, like, uh, I I went to the casino for the first time ever, like in my life, uh, I think it was last year with my friend Alex, and it was the first time I had ever been, and I, I don't think I'll ever go again. Uh, but I didn't go to there to gamble. We went there to see, like, a, there was a show or something like that. I, I don't gamble at all; don't even buy scratch tickets. But um, the, you know, there's lots of Montrealers that have never been to the Grand Prix. They've never been to the casino. They just see it as like kind of silly tourist stuff, right? Yeah. And that's uh, right. I think that, yeah, once you legalize things, there's a lot of there's this idea that suddenly people are going to be. You know, way more people are going to be doing the drug. Like, I don't think. Right. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of Johan Hari's book, Chasing yeah. the Scream, yeah. which is all on the the sort of the war on drugs and things like that. And he's just written, he's updated it to include like the opioid crisis and things uh-huh. like that. But he says in there, maybe he's wrong. I'm very curious to look into this now. He says that in Portugal, that it's not just decriminalized; that they actually have places where heroin addicts can go. and you will get pharmaceutical-grade heroin. It's a safe injection site where they will actually give you as much as you want, and it's a safe environment. And that, like most people, I think the requirement is that you can go in there, get as much heroin as you want, pharmaceutical-grade, under medical Supervision. supervision. And if I remember correctly, the only condition is... They want you to get some some counseling, some right. therapy.
2: Right. That's it. So so that, so so that's right. Uh, um, and you know, it's I think a, a call that is. So we have safe injection sites, but safe injection sites are sites where people come and inject their own, um, you know, their, their own product with no guarantee of of, uh, of product, uh, product safety. So this is in effect the next, the next logical step in the safe injection, uh, uh, philosophy, which is, you know, if you want it to be safe and you're not monitoring the product, then what are you really, um, what are you really doing? Um, so, but it's not, this isn't part of the, this is outside of the commercial. Uh, so it's not that people are selling heroin freely. It's that, uh, you know, addiction is, is perceived as a, Public health problem again, mm-hmm. and so we have to deal with it as a public health problem. Um, so, so this is sort of separate from the from the the, the, the sort of commercial um, thing. It's interestingly you should mention uh, Amsterdam, Amsterdam. So, um, you know, when people when I say you know Canada is and and we are you know I've been critical of the way in which the government, all levels of government, uh, you know, from federal all the way down to municipal, right. Um, uh, have been dealing with this. And there's been a little bit of moral panic, right? Uh, yeah. You know, uh, basically we've legalized a product that in certain municipalities made it almost impossible to consume it anywhere, right? Because it's uh, illegal, you know, even in parks in certain, certain places. I think our mayor has basically been a little bit more sane about it and said, look, you know, anywhere you can smoke a cigarette, you should be able to smoke a joint as well. Uh, in Vancouver, where I just came from, um, it's illegal in parks. It's illegal on the beach, a friend of mine wow. said that she was on the beach and saw a lifeguard very, very gently. No, uh, there was no harassment. No, you know, uh, sense that this person was going to get even ticketed. But that you know, they should butt out. They were apparently, according to her account, uh, you know, many, many yards away from the next person. So it wasn't like there was any secondhand smoke, third party kind of argument. It was just illegal in on the on the on the beaches. So I think I think there's been a lot of. You know, hopefully, transitional moral panic. Um, But we are a little bit of we we are engaging in a in a in in an experiment that no other country. So Uruguay legalized first, but legalization in Uruguay is even more restricted than it is in Canada. Basically, legalization is just a little bit more than the medical marijuana regime. So you still can only buy in pharmacies, right? You can only buy marijuana in pharmacies, and you have to have a permit, right? Um, so, and you can have the permit denied on a variety of grounds. So Canada, uh, is, is embarking in this, uh, in this sort of, uh, you know, we're, we are the pioneers. We are the first people say, well, what about the Netherlands? So the interesting thing is that the Netherlands is actually a bit of a gray zone, right? It is technically not legal in the Netherlands, although it's widely available. If you walk into a coffee shop, uh, in Amsterdam and, um, you ask where, where do you, you know, where do you get your supply? Right. Uh, you'll get a kind of a shrug, right? Uh, I don't really know. Um, so you know, so so that that's that's where the promise of the Canadian experiment, I think, uh, resides, is that um, you know we are providing Canadians who are amongst you know the highest consumers in the world uh, of uh, of marijuana. Is that right? Yeah, we're pretty we're pretty up there. Yeah, wow. Yeah, we're pretty up there um, with a safe you know a safe product a safe product with which about which we have a lot uh, we have uh you know information still a lot of bugs i mean as we speak uh whatever what is what, what is it today the the 7th of uh june 2019 7 yeah. months in 8 months in there's still only three stores on the island of montreal right um which uh is kind of crazy when you think about it um and, but uh, aren't
1: they? Aren't they just? They are selling out really rapidly. So they don't have at, enough supply. A number cause... of things.
2: At first, at first, there was there was just a predictable. We uh, one of the authors in in the book actually predicts it almost down to the you know gram. Uh, said given given so that, you know now there's a whole story to be told about why it is that so few licenses were given um, at the outset of the law, right? So Canopy and Aurora, the big. Um, you know, um, marijuana mega companies, uh, basically made out like bandits in the early days, um, were the first to get licenses and for a while basically ran the table. Now there are more licenses being, uh, pro- being given to smaller producers. Uh, but he predicted our author, um, you know, that there would be, you know, shortages of, you know, this proportion. So in the first weeks, it really was a bit of a joke. So, you know, we were down to, um, 4 days a week I think and uh you know I remember w- walking in for the first time to the store on St. Catherine I'd walked by many times and uh again for research purposes uh yeah. you know uh, and walked by many times and the line had just gone around the corner and I walked by one day and the line was actually disappeared so I walked in and a young woman at the at the at the door said I should warn you um we have nothing left and I said <laughs>
1: It's like shopping in Eastern well, Bloc countries during like, like, communism. Like, you know,
2: immediately I, she looked very young, so I didn't want to go into the Monty Python cheese store. Uh, I don't know if you remember the cheese store skit. You know, do you have any Munster? Nope. Do you have any cheddar? Nope. And John Cleese goes through this like names every cheese in the in the book, and nope, 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 nope. So I finally, you know, I asked her, well, "Why do you stay open?" And well, you know, the purpose is not just to sell; it's also educational. So if you want to come in and get some education about cannabis, please feel free. Apparently, things are actually uh, a little bit better. Um, The supplies are holding up. Um, Now, one of the reasons that – so the the plan, I think, at the outset had been that by now there would be about 30 stores on the island of Montreal. Part of that has been uh, slowed down because of the supply problem. Part of it has also been slowed down because of one dimension of the moral panic that I was talking about a moment ago. The new law, which the CAC is considering, and they made this very plain during the campaign. They said if we get elected. So the the distance from schools, right, Uh, the, 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 the stores have to be at least a certain distance from schools. The CAC said it would be that distance multiplied by two or something like that. So, you know the head of the sqdc looked at his map and realized that you know half the stores that were planned were going to be we were going to be we're going to violate um the new regulation we're going to be too close to schools according to the second um you know set of norms that the government was going to put in so there was a store there was a store that was all set up the sign was already up right near uquam uh, you can imagine that store would have done a brisk business <laughs> And it has never opened uh, because uh, it's, uh, I guess, I guess. What school is close to there? I don't know. It's Unless
1: like it's the closest school I think would be Au Pied de la Montagne, which is on the corner of Roy and uh, Henri Julien. I'm not sure. That's pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they're talking, it has to be like a an elementary or, or it's high, high school, right? Like I, I, it has to be.
2: Well, so so think it through. If you have as part of your law that um, uh, that from the point from the pers- perspective of cannabis, t- twenty one and under is what is still.
1: Oh my god! If you are so, here, then de vieux Montréal, which is right there,
2: Sejab de vieux Montréal. And, is right there, and UQAM itself, right? Uh, oh my god! What what age do kids go into university? Nineteen. So it means that for at least for the wow. first couple of years of uh, they are from the point of view of the law, minors. I right. can't
1: think of any place well, in the in the heart of Montreal where you wouldn't have some school that would fit that. So description. obviously,
2: the three that are presently uh, operational uh, are you know are, are they've they've taken out their their you know rulers and and figured that they're are they like
1: all in like Laval and
2: like- well one of them is downtown one of them is on Saint Catherine Street okay uh, I guess far enough from McGill that uh, it's okay one of them is I think in Marche Central. Okay, and one of them is on Saint Hubert in the in the in the sort of um, Marché Saint Hubert uh, Plaza Saint Hubert uh, with all the wedding shops area, and stuff like that. Shops, you can go get
1: yeah. baked before you choose a dress. I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's hilarious. So there's a fourth one
2: opening, I think, on Queen Mary uh, Avenue, uh, sort of in, in, closer to the west. But I think that um, you know that they're that they're having to redraw the. So this goes back to, you know, the question of, you know, are we going to be effective in driving out organized crime? It's fine when it's uh, nice weather like it is today. But, um, you know, in a few months when it's minus 20 again and people have a choice between getting on the metro and lining up outside an SQDC or calling their, um, you know, trustee, um, uh, you know, dealer on his bike, um, chances are that, uh, you know, we won't be – we're not shutting down the black market anytime soon.
1: Yeah, well, my my sort of, you know – Indice of this is going, I take a walk in the mountain pretty much, pretty much every day. And so I, I walk over and my approach is right by the, the big the statue, right? Um, and right where the tam-tams happen and stuff like that. And there's always these guys that, that sell weed right there. Yeah. And there's, like a, there's a team of them. There's like sometimes on a busy day, there'll be like a dozen of them. And so I thought when weed was legalized, they would be gone. But they're still doing a lot of business. They're still doing a lot of it. So, so clearly uh, the, uh, a lot of the demand is still being met. And I find that kind of fascinating that the, the weed sort of marijuana economy has become the black, black market. It has become so smooth and efficient and well run that right. the legal stuff can't compete. That's right.
2: So the legal stuff can't compete because it is, it turns out, under a huge uh, range of constraints, such as the ones that we've been talking about, that uh, the illegal product is is not. And so, um, you know, the, the, the even the most optimistic uh, estimates are that, you know, there's no, there's no real hope in the short term that the black market is going to be driven out completely. Uh, the most optimistic uh, estimates that I've heard is that within five years, replace 50% of the market which leads to, which, which which raises some interesting questions so if if you have made a product legal you've in a way legitimated even if you haven't approved you've legitimated the consumer desire for it right
1: you mm-hmm.
2: you've also acknowledged that you will be unable to set up a market sufficiently um, you know sort of effect efficient to 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 meet all of that demand So what is the status? I mean, you know, I'm I'm not enough of of an actual sort of black law lawyer to know whether an argument could be mounted. What is the status of the person who, you know, uh, goes before a judge with a fine, you know, saying you were smoking illegal weed and says, you know, monsieur, madame, le le juge, uh, you know, I tried, right? I tried. I went to the SQDC um, and, um, you know, they were out.
1: So... (laughs) I went – they just wanted to educate me state, and I wanted my you know, medicine. I got my
2: education. Uh, but then I actually wanted some, some product as well. Um, and so having having exercised due diligence in trying to go through the legal uh, route, I – and, you know, the state having acknowledged that my desire for this product is not an illegitimate one, um, you know, I'd be curious to see whether there isn't uh, – uh, you know, whether it'll be – whether some judge won't be uh, sort of sympathetic to the argument that says, you know, the market isn't able to meet my – my the, the desire that you have now said is legitimate. What have I done wrong?
1: Yeah. yeah we'll see. Well, there's a, a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about. There's one um, – You've been as as some of our listeners might know. You've been heading the Canadian Philosophical Association. Is that That's right, is you until three days ago? Three days ago, okay. Yeah. And you are you going to do it again? Or no, no, no. It's it's, one, it's, it's a, a once one in year. a
2: lifetime thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm okay. Now, I'm now the past president. You're
1: the past. So okay. Well, I have a couple questions about that. But but first of all, just a, a general. How was that? Like, was it a good experience? Was it?
2: Yeah. So so the the reason that I accepted to do it. So I, I'm a strange philosopher in the sense that. Uh, I actually, uh, for the past seven years, have not been working in a philosophy department. Uh, I was in a philosophy department for close to 20 years uh, at the University of Montreal, and I'm, I've been in a, the Faculty of Law for the last seven years. You've gone
1: the Martha Nussbaum route, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going, which is so, so good for law. It's been so good for law.
2: But so here, so, so the, the reason that I, that I that I thought it would be a good thing to do for, for philosophy is that uh, it turns out that there are quite a few of us, uh, sort of disciplinarily displaced people persons, right? People with philosophy degrees working in medical faculties, working in faculties of law, working in other departments in the humanities, you know, all over the place, but also working outside of academia. Uh, I put together a panel for the, for the Congress that just occurred in Vancouver, uh, just literally, uh, the last few days, um, where we brought together people who, um, Got a philosophy PhD, right? My requirement for people on the panel was, you know, got a philosophy PhD and then um, did something completely different, right? So some of them did stuff that was completely different within the academy, but three of them uh, had done something completely different completely outside the academy. One is Andrew Potter, yeah, uh, who did a very, very, uh, you know, like – a very philosophical philosophy thesis at the University of Toronto, uh, 20 years ago in like metaphysics, uh, and, uh, became the, you know, editor in chief of the Ottawa citizen. One was a young, uh, philosopher who spent six years in Silicon Valley, uh, working in an AI, uh, in an artificial intelligence, uh, think tank, uh, and not doing, you know, so you think about philosophy and, uh, um, philosophy and, and artificial intelligence. The thing that immediately comes to mind is, well, we're going to have these driverless cars, and so we have to tell them, we have to program the
1: moral algorithms into
2: them, so they know who to kill. You know, if they're in a. But she wasn't doing that at all. She was actually. Um, uh, a logician, uh, and she was basically writing, um, languages, you know, pred- you know, using her predicate logic expertise to write, uh, you know, essentially, you know, languages for, comp- for robots to understand. So, you know, philosophers are, are in, 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 you know, are, 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 there are tons of philosophers working in AI, um, and in, uh, um, you know, um, computers in Silicon Valley. Uh, and there was a guy working, uh, on, um, Uh, Doing translation software, which is kind of, you know, one of the manifestations of AI. So my, you know, what I wanted to do was to um, shine a light on the sort of philosophical diaspora, as it were, and bring them closer to the philosophical community for the good of both. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I kind of, I love teaching in the in the Faculty of Law. Students are great. I love my colleagues. It's a wonderful intellectual environment. But from time to time, I do feel the need to go and teach a course in the philosophy department because it's just a different kind of expectation on the part of the students. Uh, and I can – you know, the students in law are extremely smart. Don't get me wrong. But they're not in law in order to do philosophy. They're in law to do law. Mm-hmm. And so when you teach them philosophy, you do that in a slightly different way. Um, so uh, – and I, I think that it's good also for philo- – you know – Let's, let's not be, uh, you know, ph- tenure-track philosophy jobs are not in abundance these days, right? So yeah. unless we start really, really sort of scaling down our graduate programs, producing fewer PhDs in philosophy, uh, we have to start thinking about gainful employ that uh philosophy uh grads can uh take on um where they're bringing you know their philosophical chops to the table as it were where they're doing something that is re- where their skills are relevant and it turns out that there're quite a few uh there, you know there're quite a few uh débouchés there're quite a few ways in which uh in which to do that that don't involve tenure track teaching uh, that don't involve tenure track positions and that don't involve uh, becoming sort of adjuncts and sessionals, right? Which is uh, the dirty little secret of academia today, oh. which is that it runs essentially on miserably paid, um, you know, uh, talk about there ought to be a law, right? Oh, yeah. Um, miserably paid adjuncts with no career prospects who, you know, uh, hit 40 realizing that they have spent the last 10 or 15 years, uh, you know, teaching for, for, pennies and making themselves ineligible because they don't have time to publish anything for any of the tenure track jobs that are out there. So I think that we are, you know, uh, participating and sustaining a horribly immoral practice to the extent that we tell our graduate students, oh, well, you know, if you don't get a position, you can always get a sessional gig. Yeah. Um, uh, so we have to, you know, we have to think as a profession about ways in which, um, you know, we can we can broaden the professional vistas for our students. So that was my That was my, my, my deal. So, you know, we, we had this session, we created up a committee of the permanent committee of the Canadian philosophical association, which will be made up of people who have jumped the philosophy, uh, fence, uh, you know, to, to. Shine a light on the professional opportunities that are out there. Create databases that students will be able to look into. Uh, You know, the woman who worked in uh, AI was telling us that it was pure happenstance, pure accident that she got her job. Somebody literally gave her an ad and she responded to it almost on a lark. Had a Skype interview with a guy in Austin, Texas, uh, where he asked her at the interview, like on the spot, can you code this, uh, you know, uh, send this paragraph in whatever. Uh, She did and he said, how how quickly can you get, you know, how quickly can you start? Uh, but, you know, that's, 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 you know, not everybody has the luck of having a friend slip a, a job ad to them. So creating databases that we can more systematically use to inform students about the jobs that are out there, uh, but also talk to, you know, I mean, it's, it, there probably isn't a profession in the world that does as poor a job preparing its students for what they actually are going to end up doing when they get a job. So even if you, if you, even if you think about just a regular tenure track job, right? I did my PhD. It was a pure research uh, degree. You know, basically, I met my supervisor. He said, "Go write a thesis." You know, and. Keep me posted on, send me a chapter from time to time. There was no sense that uh, I should be trained as an administrator because I would have to be part of a department that I would have to help administer. There was no sense that I should, in any way, systematically be trained as a teacher. I was given teaching, but nobody told me how to do it, right? Um, And then you get a job, right? And they tell you, wonderful, we're giving you a job because of this wonderful research that you did in X or Y university. Now, you know, go and administer this complex entity, which is a department of, you know, however many colleagues and hundreds of students and, you know, go teach those 350 uh, kids that are waiting for you in that auditorium over there.
1: Yeah, um, which is, I mean, when you think about it, it's absolutely insane, insane. because because the, the skill set, the, the kind of person that is going to do a PhD and is going to do all these it, – it's – it's the kind of person that tends to work alone. They maybe are somewhat introverted. Yeah. They're not terribly... Uh, they don't like crowds. And they're probably... It's just... It's, it's unbelievable. I've watched that so many times yeah. that it's what the job actually is, yeah. which is, uh, involves, as you say, teaching. And, and uh, if you... you know, everybody has to do their service from time to time. you got to be chair of the department for a while. A lot of administration... And yet, the kind of people that are going to end up there are precisely the kind of people who are terrible at administration oh, and terrible at teaching. Absolutely, I mean, right? you know,
2: I mean, the, the idea that as a chair you have a responsibility, which everybody at some point, you know, unless they are they make themselves known to be sort of antisocial, uh, you know, you have to draw up a departmental budget.
1: You yeah, know. a lot of people. I've done that. I was chair of my department for right whatever years. A,
2: yeah. You know, a budget for their you know household, let alone. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and so, so, so I think I think that already there's always been a huge problem with graduate training. We do not actually train people for the job that they are going to do. It's like you know training pastry chefs and then telling them that they have to like lay cement or something on a on a road. It's like you know what are we doing? But I think we should go beyond that. I think that we should um, you know not make the assumption. After all, people who are in engineering schools. Do not go to, engi- to faculties of engineering in order to become engineering teachers. They go in order to build bridges and uh, you know whatever else engineers do. Uh, figure out, uh, you know, computers and build computers and things like that. I mean, we should think of philosophy a little bit like that as well, right? Philosophy: the, the idea that we should train graduate students in philosophy just in order to be professors of philosophy and researchers in philosophy in these very, very constricted institutional environments, which are universities or stage-ups, uh, you know, is really weird, right? I mean, you know, philosophers should be available for all manner of... Uh, uh, of, of, of of work, um, of different kinds. And, uh, we are not training students in, or to, to see the jobs that are out there for them or to develop the kinds of aptitudes, which, um, which are necessary to, to train them. I mean, amongst you know, a million things that I could give as an example. I mean, most jobs in the real world outside of academia are interpersonal. You work as a te- you work, Sort of you know it 's teamwork you have to you have to be part of a team or run a team division of of tasks within a a complex operation i mean philosophy perhaps more than other disciplines you know maybe like maybe more like history and less like you know sociology or th- where where we do have perhaps more research teams where you fall into a uh, somebody 's research project we 're lone you know we 're lone wolves right uh, like you know even co authoring is something that we do uh rarely right whereas our our colleagues in the in the so in the sciences you know most of their publications are are co-authored we need to teach people you know who are going to go off and work in a management consulting firm or in an ai uh think tank how to work with other people um and uh, again you know it's um our graduate so anyway all this to say uh, i had a you know my i decided i agreed to do it because i thought that it was a missing you know there's this uh There's this diaspora. I think I'm the first president not to be drawn from a philosophy department. And uh, I think it's important uh, for the profession uh, that we start looking at philosophy as a set of tools that can be put to use in a variety of professional environments rather than just sort of reproducing this very narrow professional cast, which, you know... To be, uh, you know, be lucid about it. It's not in you know. It's not like uh, we're going to get explosions in uh, <laughs> tenure track philosophy jobs in universities in the years to come.
1: Yeah, well, the Stephen Marsh wrote this. I don't know if you saw it. He wrote this article. Uh, it was in the Times Literary Supplement, um, like yesterday or the day before. No. And it's it's he left academia. Right. He That's was an English was prof, yeah, and he left academia to become a, a, a journalist and a writer. And he, so 10 years later, he went to the MLA conference and he was talking about just what a mess, like how it just seemed like, you know, this very, very depressed kind of uh, the like 45 history uh, made enrollments in history departments down 45%. And he was going through all these different philosophies mentioned as well. And he said, there's just this sense that, you know, we're, we're like sort of watching this the ship go down right this very uh, yeah, yeah yeah and a lot of he said a lot of the sessions at there was sort of what to do after academia like what to do with your humanities phd like if you can't get a job in academia and yeah. and having like different so i mean you you Clearly, have got your finger on the pulse, you know, setting up that.
2: Yeah. So, so you know, I, th- I think that, you know, I I don't know other disciplines as well. Um, but I think, you know, philosophy has an argument to be made for, you know, there is an argument to be made for philosophy as this set of all-purpose kind of tools. I'll, you know, I, I did my PhD in England, you know, which is a very kind of – I started my PhD in 1986. So this was in the old days. Um, first or second year. Um I got a note in my uh it was before the internet before email a note in my pigeonhole printed on nice embossed paper saying uh Mackenzie and Mackenzie, you know consulting you know I had never heard of it would like to invite you to a special dinner to uh, discuss uh uh professional opportunities Uh, can't remember exactly so it was a fancy it was the one fancy chinese restaurant in Oxford free meal so uh what what the heck, right? I went along. And um, so they basically were making a pitch to the philosophers at Oxford, come and work as a management consultant, right? Uh, Now, at the time, as a kind of a uh, smart-ass, you know... uh, not going to prostitute myself to, uh, to be a management consultant. Although the following year when the same invitation came, I took up the dinner again, but a couple of my friends actually said, Hey, this actually seems kind of interesting. And, um, you know, like a living can be made now, why did they go and uh, ask philosophers? Well, you know, at a certain level, philosophy Especially the kind of philosophy that's done in an Anglo you know department like Oxford, kind of very analytic it's kind of problem solving right it's looking at a problem which many people might see as one big inchoate mess and breaking it down right and it turns out that it seems that's what management consulting is so my friend who had a quite close Colleague and friend who who jumped ship and went uh, and and he is now uh, you know if you look him up uh, I don't know if I should mention his name but he's still very much uh, uh, working as, as a management consultant and has risen very high in uh, in the corporate echelon so I think philosophy has an argument that can be made for it. Um, in a lot of different areas, um, and we just have to make that argument, right? Because I think ethically, we can't keep on, you know, we're in this, you know, talk about a system of perverse incentives. You know, the health of departments financially depends on getting graduate students in, so there's an incentive to get in more graduate students than we actually can place, then you know, so yeah. you know, it, you know. It would be unethical if you, were, if you were running any kind of a job placement service, right, to be running it in the full knowledge that there's about 25% of the people, you know, and I'm speaking probably conservatively, that you're not going to be able to place, here, come, give me your money, right, we'll teach you how to do X. And we know there's a chance out of one chance out of four that you won't be able to do it. Well, you 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 should, at the very least, be extremely upfront about what the numbers are. Um, but you should probably try to raise those numbers as well. So,
1: well, I mean, look at what law schools and medical schools—they're always looking at the market, seeing what yeah. and if they notice that there's suddenly a kind of a glut of of doctors so or lawyers lower, on the market, the they will lower the number of people they let into That's the medical right. schools. That's and, right. and they're very careful and responsible yeah. about that. Yeah. And so this idea that you know that humanities departments say they're like, oh we just you know, we're just we're so innocent. We have no there's no way to really know. Come on. Like you know that you're letting in way more people than you can actually then you can actually, That's right. then the market That's can, right. That's right. so it's, the academic market. So, yeah. So, you
2: know, I think that there's, there's work to be, there's certainly like not much is being done. If you go to any university, uh big university, go to McGill uh, or, or, or U of T and you ask the placement officers, do you view your work as a, as a placement officer as encompassing placing people in other kinds of jobs? where, again, it's not not a question of, uh, you know, placing them as baristas as Starbucks, like other kinds of, you know, good professional opportunities where they will be putting their philosophical skills to work. I think it would come as something, they wouldn't, you know, reject the idea out of hand, but they probably would say, oh, you know, I never really thought of that, right? And so, you know, my, again, you know, the reason that uh, uh, when I was asked to, to become president and my initial reaction was... Uh, you know I'm busy enough, uh, thank you very much. I thought this was something that you know that some good could come of this if uh, if I'm able to set up a little bit of a first of all a, a consciousness taking that this is part of our responsibility but also some mechanisms right that will both shine a light on the professional opportunities that are out there and maybe nudge the departments uh, to be a little bit more creative in the way that they uh, train their graduate students so Waterloo. University of Waterloo, not the biggest department in Canada, um, had a great idea a few years ago. Uh, they have um, a program now in applied philosophy. So not applied ethics, applied philosophy. And here the idea is that um, you don't just uh, you know, sit in your armchair and think philosophical thoughts and then apply them to a problem of your making. You have to go find a partner right, in, in industry, in uh, the p- public sector, wherever, and co-design A problem that they actually, you know, want you to be working on. Part of your thesis is a philosophy thesis, you know, of uh, of uh, of you know that that will that will entitle you to apply for a job in a in a in a philosophy department. But part of it is going to be a report that you write for the partner. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, and and this can be, I mean, Waterloo is right in the middle of of Canada's Silicon Valley, as it were, right, Uh, research research in motion, et cetera. Um, So I think that's a great idea. Very, very forward thinking idea. Now, I was just at the Congress and talked to a couple of the people from the department. To my surprise... And this is saying something. I thought when I first heard about it, you know, if you go to Research in Motion or the provincial government and say I got this philosopher, you know, works on want to works on a problem, it's like, oh, please, you know, <laughs> uh, I got enough problems uh, as it is. Yeah. Go home. But no, they're 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 keen. The problem is with recruiting students who uh, feel like this is sort of like philosophy light, like they're getting um, uh, a, uh, a second tier uh, philosophical training. So I think that. Uh, you know we need to support initiatives like Waterloo's and um and and sort of do something in order to show that no you know um this is value plus this is not so, this is something that will allow you to get a a philosophy job right but it will also allow you to entertain a lot of different other kinds of possibilities that are out there so you know i i'm you know I think that there's a limit to to the to the rain you know we're not gonna place thousands and thousands but again you know uh i was i spent a month during my my sabbatical in, in in the heart of silicon valley in in palo alto um you know with google google campus uh ten kilometers to the left of me and uh facebook ten kilometers to the right and you know people like like uh you know uh like zuckerberg and uh uh you know the jobs and the gates and the of the world didn't get rich by being stupid, right? They they realized that uh, it takes a lot of different kinds of minds to um, create the kind of revolution that they did. And, um, you know, um, talking to some of the people at Stanford, now Stanford has become more or less sort of Silicon Valley U, um, but they're recruiting people from of all, of all different kinds. Um, you know, it's, it's just a question of... Uh, of uh, a little bit more more, more creativity, thinking outside the box a little bit. Yeah. So.
1: Well, the, even the Canadian government has a program yes. where they specifically are trying to get people with PhDs in the humanities into kind of yes. high level. Because I know yes. a couple of my friends have been recruited in, into it, and it's been wonderful. Yeah. Like, they've gotten exciting yeah. jobs doing really neat Absolutely. things. Absolutely. And it's because they... They they recognize that this is an untapped yeah. resource. Yeah. You know, yeah. we've got these people that are highly trained to think long and hard about difficult problems yeah. and come up with. So we we got to have them in the in the foreign service. We've got to have them in the military and CSIS and things like that. So they're they're getting them they're getting them in. It's been a good but it, sort of uh, connected to this. You know, we we've talked about this not on the air but about the. It's sort of like epidemic of depression and anxiety that's uh, been happening, and you know they're right now. I mean, this is something that I, I cover quite a bit in a few of my classes. But they're right now the young people, the Generation Z, as they they call yeah. them, have the highest rates of depression and anxiety on record yeah. of any any demographic cohort and, like cohort, yeah, yeah, in history, yeah, yeah, and. What do you think is going on? I yeah. mean this is I – mean, if there's a question philosophers should be you know, asking yeah. and yeah. trying to come up with an answer yeah. for, it. this is definitely one of them. Yeah, the, the,
2: I, think, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean uh, you know, the, the, the New York Times had a piece about a year ago on a school in New Jersey where they literally – I mean this is the, the most heartbreaking thing as a parent. You, know, you, can, you can imagine they had, a, they had to hire people in order to call kids at home to coax them out of bed to come to school. Uh, because they were just riven with kind of paralyzing anxiety. So, you know, um, so it's, you know, the, the first thing to say is there's clearly something going on. The uh, second thing there is to say is, um, you know, there's a lot of facile um, sort of truthy. You remember that? uh <laughs> Stephen Colbert, when, he, when Stephen Colbert was uh, <laughs> yeah. the Colbert rapport, yeah. rather than uh, the Colbert that we know now, you know, it, it's truthy in that it sounds plausible, but it is absolutely untested. There's a lot of truthiness out there about what's going on, um, and I think that um, you know we have to we have to resist the um, the uh, comfortable, easy, just hypotheses, which may you know, which isn't to say that they might turn out to be they might to be they might turn out to be correct in some sense but uh i think we have to we have to avoid the kind of um you know uh assumption that we can figure it out just by just by common sense right so you know i i am uh there's a meme that was going around at some point in response to this on the internet uh um you know um kid uh uh you know Donald Trump, uh, climate change annihilation, uh, you know, economic meltdown. I'm so depressed and anxious. Parent, must be the cell
1: phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Right. Well, I, so, I know I've asked uh, anonymously, of course, but I, I asked them to just write it on a piece of paper and fold it up. And then I, uh, students. I tell students, right, yeah. and I ask them, like, and the number of students in my class that – are on some sort of medication yeah. for depression or anxiety or yeah. some mood disorder is it's it's unbelievable like there's been some classes where it's 25% yeah. uh, one class the highest it was a third yeah. uh, it's never been lower than than 20% yeah. right? and this is semester after semester after semester numerous classes whenever we and just sort of telling them telling them that say like you know this is the percentage of the class they they all think it's just them, and so they yeah. feel totally like, "Oh wow, yeah. I didn't realize there's yeah. so many people in this class that are having exactly the same yeah. issues as yeah. me." But, but that's very, very surprising, and it's it's new. I mean, I just, what do you think? I mean, I get your sort of sort of prologue that we should not yeah. give way to, like, but Easy. what a what does your your gut tell you? What is your what do you think is going on
2: so you know i I think I, th- I you know i mean the first thing is i mean I think of my own youth, I think of myself when I was uh say the age of the kids who seem to be in the in the in the center of the of the curve you know really experiencing uh severe anxiety you know i I wasn't brought up in particularly you know I, my parents were working class uh you know they weren't parts of the networks that would ensure that i would uh you know, their, 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 their friends weren't doctors or lawyers or anything like that. I, you know, um, but you know, the, my sense turning 19, 18, 19 in the early eighties, uh, was that things would be fine, right? Things would be fine. Uh, I would probably do better in terms of, you know, revenue income than my parents did, which turned out to be, to be true. Uh, you know, the, the, and he, so here's where, you know, some of the, some of the technological, you know, but again I want to be very careful about, you know, studying the problem uh so that we're actually coming up with solutions that attack the problem where it is rather than where we think it is. Um, you know, what, what were the great fears that we had? You know, the the it was the end of the Cold War, right? So, uh, you know, the the I remember vaguely, you know, the cartoons that I was watching when I was um uh, a kid on, you know, maybe in the early seventies being interrupted by, um, I can, I remember the words exactly. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. I remember
1: that. E- yeah. E- I this totally is only
2: a test, right? Yeah. And I had no idea what it was about. And by the time, you know, I was in my teens, you know, I mean, the Cold War was still a thing, but, you know, it, it was, there was no real sense that we were, the nuclear war was looming. The environmental crisis, you know, was still something that only a few, you know, it meant littering. It meant don't litter, right? Yeah. It didn't mean we are changing our habitat in such a fundamental way that it might not be able to sustain life, right? That that discourse um, did not impinge upon my consciousness when i was an adolescent right so um i mean just think about that growing up right growing up with all of the vulnerabilities that growing up involves right in an environment where you are told rightly it turns out that you know by not 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 you know at some point in the indefinite future but that by 2050 and you do the math that's your lifetime right um you know the earth might not be able to sustain you know many of the species you know that are um that's some pretty anxiety uh, uh inducing uh inducing stuff um so we do live in anxiety <laughs> provoking times. We also live in, in in times where that anxiety is, uh, so, you know, I, I was born in an era where uh, I was pre CNN, right? Uh, so the 24 hour news cycle didn't exist. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to watch the news, you watched the news at 10 or at 11, you know, it was Lloyd Robertson or, uh, whoever the, the person, at 10 was, uh, and then at 1024, the, that was, the sports came on and ended at 1030. And that was it. You know, the, the sort of everywhere you look, Right. The the things running underneath saying that uh, whatever. Sky is theater, falling. Sky is falling. Sky is falling. Sky yeah. is falling. Yeah. Uh, wasn't there. So they, they were anxiety. Um, they were anxiety producing times. Um, you know, I. I um,
1: but the thing is, just for those two ones, when I talk to my students, there's a couple of them that are, you know, that are really kind of environmentalists and they they're vegans and they want to like, you know, they they're. They're really experts, but they're a small minority. So most of them, and, and the vast majority of my students, and by, by that, I'm talking like well over 90%, never read newspapers, right. do not watch the news at all. They have no interest in the news whatsoever. Right. So they're not anxious about, or at least if they, if they are, they're hiding it really well. They are, they're not anxious about like world events or about climate change or about environment, right. they're anxious in a much more primal kind of this sort of inchoate yeah. like thing that is just, and it, yeah. they're more anxious about coming to my class yeah. uh, because they didn't finish the reading or they're, they're worried how they look and stuff like that. It's, it's much more small and personal right. and it's right. Uh, right. Right.
2: So again, you know, I, uh, the, you're, you're absolutely right. And, 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 uh, you know i think we're at a, we're at a stage where we're still in the um hypothesis gathering uh and testing um uh, uh phase um you know one of them one of them is and i think back to my own uh to my own youth around this time you know th- there's always the possibility that uh part of it not all of it but part of it is explained by a greater sensitivity not necessarily positive, like greater sensitivity can mean that we become sensitive to things that we should a greater sensitivity to to various kinds of difference right to, to um, you know when I think back to uh, to my to my you know my sage up class um, there's some pretty Odd characters, right? Um, there, there was, you know, and I, I could describe some of the, some of the, you know, some of the ways in which, you know, the the, the oddness was borderline pathological, you know, borderline. But we never thought about um, categorizing them other than by that's you know, there's you know there's George being odd again, right? Yeah. Um, so. I wonder, and again, I'm going to say everything in a very sort of tentative tentative and hypothetical way whether there isn't a self perpetuating vicious circle that comes from and comes from the best of places, right? We want to help our kids. Yeah. We want to, and we want to catch things early, right? Um, And so we end up uh, scripting in a way um, um, descriptions of what would have at a certain point not been. Uh, something pathological as being pathological, and then there you know the risks of then um pathologi- pathologizing them in 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 clinical ways right um uh, you know medicalizing and so i don't know whether that's part of it right that we have uh we sort of
1: labeling theory lab- we're kind of like that's right yeah well that's i mean in in societies where they have uh like very kind of religious societies where they believe in demon possession surprise surprise. A certain number of people uh, show signs of demon possession right. and will act like they are. If you believe in speaking in tongues, some people speak in tongues. So if you have all of these descriptions of a certain kind of behavior, um, you'll get people manifesting right. those behaviors and you know,
2: and then the, the prescri- so so you know, and I want to be very careful here because I don't want to come off as like a, an anti vaxxer or something like this. Yeah, but the, no, you're yeah. the ease with which um, drugs get prescribed. So, I mean, I'm going to preface this by saying that there is no question, no question in my mind, right? That there are people for whom uh, you know uh, prescribed drugs have been life savers. Right? Uh, if you're uh, if you're if, if you have if you're in the grips of some kind of psychotic uh uh, uh problem schizophrenia you know you're not gonna it's, talk therapy is not going to get you through it <laughs> <No>. right <laughs> um but and so so there is no question that uh that that um that drugs uh that uh, have have made a, a huge positive difference for a lot of people we do live in a in a in a our, our medical system is one in which we um We're very quick. Doctors are very quick, not because they're bad doctors, but because the system incentivizes them to do so. Very quick to the prescription pad, right? Um, We just had a reform of the healthcare system in this province under the previous government where uh, doctors were told you have to see more patients. Now, there's only so many hours in the day, right? And uh, it's not as if we're producing that many more doctors. The math just dictates that seeing more patients is going to mean seeing each patient for less time, mm-hmm. right? Now, there is no, as a doctor once told me, it's not me making this this uh, phrase up, there's no more effective way of ending a uh, clinical encounter than to reach for the prescription pad, right? Now, add to that the fact that, um, uh, you know, writing the prescription pad means you're going to be uh, having something, uh, you know, you're going to be... Uh, uh, channeling the person who you're writing a prescription for towards something which is going to be covered by public insurance to at least a significant degree, right? Uh, uh, You know, uh, drugs aren't free, as we know. We're still trying to figure out a way of having an effective pharmacare. You know, having somebody to talk to, which, you know, is something that we all need. Right is something that um, is less you know the the system disincentivizes that uh, it is far easier it is far more economically efficient if you have to think about how to treat a kid who has a uh, anxiety problem with drugs than it is uh, to have them uh, seen by someone who's going to talk to them who's going to engage in various kinds of non pharmaceutical therapy with them. The system sort of nudges us towards in a certain direction. And my... Uh, reading of the evidence suggests that that might not be a good idea, especially for adolescents, right? We were talking about marijuana mm-hmm. and the uh, and the adolescent brain. Well, it turns out that there's a little bit of evidence that suggests that if, you know, uh, the drugs that we're using for uh, mood disorders of various kinds are sort of perfectly okay, you know, for older people, they might not be, um, uh, you know, they, they, we may want to worry about them a little bit more uh, for, uh, for, for younger people. Weaning, um, you know, um, Weeding off of drugs is uh something that uh, we're only understanding that there's a a really uh soul destroying uh um, thing in the New Yorker a few weeks ago, young woman, brilliant young woman at Harvard who started having, uh, depression started taking one drug, which created a side effect for which she was given another drug by the time, you know, it all, it all came crashing down. She was taking six or seven drugs, um, which um, were all sort of, you know, piggybacking on the back of the, uh, of the other one, you know, something that is going to be needed in order to treat the uh, the, the, the harmful consequences of the other to the point where, as she said, and this is something, you know, uh, very deep, which I think is, you know, she had no, she no longer really had a sense of who she was, right. She'd lost a grip on her self, you know, because essentially she was being, so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of free associating, uh, in ways that aren't terribly, um, (laughs) But, you know, I think, I, think that, uh, I think that we have to uh, take the problem very seriously, but avoid the kind of facile, you know, the number of times that I have heard well-meaning, well-meaning friends, parents uh, say that, you know, they're responding to, uh, you know, the um, appearance of anxiety type symptoms in their kids by taking away their cell phones or their screens, limiting their screen times. You know, there's a very natural tendency in human beings, I think, that goes back to, you know, I don't know, something in our lizard brain to have a kind of a um, magical causality sort of, you know, this is bad, that is bad. You know, if I could tell a story that connects the two bad things, I've made sense of my world in a way, right? Randomness, shit happens, is not something that the human animal, um, you know, deals very happily with. Yeah. But if I can make a connection between, I think my kid, you know, looks at her, her cell phone too much, right? My kid is anxious. Ah, must be that the the cell phone use, which I don't like, not because I have any scientific reason to think that it's having anything to do with her anxiety, but just because I don't like it when she's looking at it at the table. It pisses me off. It, it I feel dissed by the fact that she's looking at her cell phone ah, if I can establish a connection between these two things, I bring order to my world. You know, the bad things in life are connected, the cell phone and her anxiety. And I managed to have a sort of rationale uh, for, for limiting her uh, her cell phone use. You know, I mean, it could be that at the end of the day when we've done the research, we will discover that, yes, kids are looking at their, <laughs> there there is something anxiety producing about, uh, you know, uh, looking at your screen all the time. Um, uh, and that, uh, you know... Um, but I haven't seen it I haven't seen what the what the what the evidence is and I think we have to be very careful especially with you know these are our kids these are people that we love that we would do anything to to help to engage in the kind of magical thinking that comes uh that comes um, that just comes too quickly
1: Yeah well I mean a lot of people said the same thing about about reading and novels you know like a century or two ago that they thought this was so terrible that there were all these young people spending hours with their nose in a right. book and this was right. you should be you know dancing and talking and learning how right. to like right. you know be more social things like that yeah. and that this was ruining so, so, it, so there yeah. is a pattern of there is a pa- yeah, looking right. at the new thing That's right.
2: Yeah, I am old enough you know I you know I mean it, it is true and again I don't want to I don't want to make myself sound uh uh make, uh, make claims that are any more uh um you know I don't know at the end of the day but you know, um, social media, right? The 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 sort of Hobbesian war of all against all that social media can descend into. And, you know, for adolescent, maybe adolescent girls to greater than adolescent boys, the kind of bullying that goes on there, no doubt a horrible thing. Now, you and I both remember when, uh, you know, the same sort of phenomena happened just in real time. Right? <laughs> it's not like bullying got invented. Yeah. Uh, you know, once the iPhone and iPhone was placed in everybody's hand, it's not like uh, you know adolescent girls are socialized in a way that makes them, uh, you know, super sensitive and super anxious about you know, uh, criticisms made of their, uh, appearance rumor, you know, rumor mongering, the rumor mill, you know, I, I, I remember awful, terrible things, uh, you know, that were, ca- that were able to, uh, be sustained in the complete absence of, uh, social media back in the day. Now, yeah, you know, right. I have a 15 year old girl, right. A 15 year old girl who is very, very social media, uh, present. She's got, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of followers on, on Instagram, um, which you know uh, blows my mind, of course, we're blocked my my wife and I from following her uh, as well, we should because I probably wouldn't be able to you know, like you know um, so do I worry about uh uh about social media of course, I do, I'm a parent, but uh would I have worried about the sort of in group out group dynamics that were so painful to uh, the people that I knew and loved around me when I was an adolescent probably would have been just as much, so yeah uh you know the, the, again i go back to what i was saying the the it's not because something is new that it is necessarily the cause of this new uh this new thing we have to we have to do a lot more uh we have to do a lot more work you know um and we have to be a lot more self critical as well you know i've i've heard very very little work uh or rumor or hypothesis mongering uh in, amongst uh the people who've written about this about um you know, one of the new things that's out there that might be an explanatory variable is uh, uh, parenting. You know, um, uh, we, our parenting styles have definitely changed from what they were in, uh, in uh, the, the time of my parents. It's a kind of strange combination. If I look at my peer group or even at ourselves, strange combination of kind of helicopter parenting in the one sense. You know, we, you know, I spent a lot of time at the park. Right, my parents did not organize, you know, my summers or my uh, play dates or playdates or or summer camps. You know, the park down the street was my for years and years was uh, in the swimming pool at the end of it. You know, I found out years after that Mrs. Greenberg, who lived in the house right on the corner, was sort of made responsible by the other parents to just keep a vague eye on what was going on. But it was very very loose, right? Uh, You know, is there an ambulance like that has been? Um, uh, so we don't do that anymore. We, you know, we organize our kids. We, uh, you know, make sure that they're in the hockey league or in the dance, uh, you know, uh, free time that isn't occupied by, uh, improving activities is, uh, you know, uh, so that's a new thing, right? Uh, how much is the stress that we place on our kids by over-organizing their time Maybe a factor in, in, in some of this. Maybe also a strange combination of helicoptering on the one hand and a certain amount of, um, Lesser investment of time, um, on the other, you know, we kind of outsource, uh, the parenting to all of the hockey coaches and to the dance teachers and to the, you know, because we're so hopelessly busy, right. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the professionals amongst us, you know, uh, my parents had jobs that, uh, pretty much ended at five o'clock, right. They came home and they were there, you know, uh, whereas, you know, professionals be they academics or not, uh are are not, right? We, you know, have to get back to the preparing that lecture for the next morning at 830 because we're, you know, busy doing other stuff during the, during the day. So, you know, rather than focusing on the cell phone, maybe, you know, look at the ways in which uh, it'd be interesting to, to have a uh, epidemiological study of uh, the distribution of these anxiety disorders amongst kids being parented in different ways, right? Uh, our kids of professionals may be more likely. I'm, I'm, you know, again, I yeah. don't
1: know. Well, there's a, the kind of the best stab at a, at a really serious kind of guess and sort of hypothesis I've read so far. is the well, same guy the Johan yeah, Hari, who Harry, yeah. wrote, uh, chasing the screen, his new one, lost yeah. connections. Yeah, I, I read that as well. He's, yeah. uh, he has, it's, it's a very, very compelling and interesting, Sort of start to addressing it, but I mean, he definitely does not uh, blame like cell phones or social media. He says that it's well, it's much it's yeah, yeah it's much deeper than that. It's that we don't have um, the same kinds of associational life. We don't have the same kinds of like leisure time and feeling kind of connected to to other people. And so, and, and he points out that the rates of anxiety and depression. Among it's a very sort of Durkheimian argument, like, but right. among uh, groups like Hasidic Jews or the Amish or people who are uh, involved lower. in like kind of religious minorities, are incredibly low. Yeah, they don't have their kids are not, yeah. um, you know, showing up and and being medicated and stuff like that. Their kids are doing um, fine. Yeah, right. Yeah. So which is so it's, clearly it's something about the way that we're organizing things right yeah
2: yeah, yeah I'm, you know and but again i think i think uh this is where we really need to um you know as as, as matt damon said in uh you know we need to we need to science this
1: you know we need to science, science, the, shit shit. Yeah, need I mean, science the shit out of this yeah yeah
2: and we, we need to come up with you know are there patterns right are there you know what i want to know is there's this you're absolutely you know there's no denying that there's this massive datum right of just you know many, many, many all of a sudden, many, many, many more kids presenting with uh, these kinds of, of of symptoms. Is there a way of disambiguating the mass? You know, is it, is it is it is it are there are there salient uh lines within that mass more, you know, I, I threw out the hypothesis completely gratuitous, right? Of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, is it more is it more pervasive amongst, say, professional uh, the kids of professionals who have this strange combination of on the one hand over parenting by, you know, making sure that every single moment of their, uh, lives is accounted for. I mean, you know, I've always, there, there was a thing I read years ago and it's sort of come back in various guises that I've always been, I was an only child, uh, and my parents were, my parents were great parents, but they were sick. You know, my mother had cancer, uh, when I was quite young and, uh, on, you know, my father was not, you know, so my parents didn't, um, didn't spend a lot of time, uh you know there there's a lot of sort of you know throwing the baseball outside that I didn't really get cuz my dad was looking after my mom and stuff like that so i spent spent a lot of time until until my adolescence when 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 i you know my my more gregarious side came out and i started making a lot of friends i just ended up essentially living at other people's houses interestingly enough uh, searching out friends, girlfriends who came from big families. Right. <laughs> my first serious girlfriend was from a family of six. And you know, my best friend through high school was from a family of five. And I adored I like I almost like a need to be like in those... like the
1: busyness, the oh, like, love talking yeah, I loved Dinner that. time love that.
2: Love dinner that. time at a you know at, at either one of their houses with the parents and you know five kids and usually like a there's like ten, twelve people around the dinner table, utter chaos, right? Uh, was something that I felt it filled a real Really deep need our dinners are always very ordered There's are just three of us right um, but uh, but th- th- I, I spent a lot of time um, bored. Right. Um, you know, uh, until I, uh, you know, had enough of a social life to take care of it myself. I spent a lot of time by myself kind of bored and boredom doesn't sound good. Right. Uh, and I didn't experience it as, as good when I was when I was ex- when I was living it. Turns out that boredom is a good thing. Right? Oh, yeah. Boredom is good for the brain. Very,
1: very important. Right. And we for creativity you know, for all sorts of things. Yeah. You know, and I say this
2: knowing this, uh, and, uh, yet, you know, when, when I was, when the kids were young, when my kids were younger and I sort of saw one of my kids just sort of sitting around, not doing anything rather than saying, oh, you know, something is, something is percolating up there. You know, let's just let it, you know, I would, uh, Hey, come on, let's go do something. You know, uh, the idea that one of my children might be bored was like, um, you know, uh, an indictment of me, you know, as a parent, you know, how could I allow this state of affairs <laughs> to, uh, to continue, you know? Uh, so again, we, we, I think we, we, we have to, we have to do some, uh, you know, we need to get our epidemiological colleagues on this and start, you know, figuring out whether, what are the risk factors? Is it just widely distributed such that, you know, kids are just, equally likely to fall prey to this regardless of where they are in the socioeconomic or or religious or you know or are there uh some serious lines in the sand that we can distinguish and then what do we do about it right i mean going back to your uh you know i just finished watching i don't know if you've heard of a tv show on netflix called Schizzle.
1: it's on my to-do list because you recommended it you said it, said it was so up. amazing move it way up like seriously Start like tonight. how like how good is it like compare it to like another show? I would but, say
2: it's one of the best shows I've seen in the last like five years. I would put it up there with the absolute
1: like know, up there you know, with like shows. Breaking Bad and yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah. Better? Acting is I mean it's a very different thing, right? It's it's a it's basically a family. It's a family. The stizzles are a family, you know, with this patriarch. That uh, but the acting is is remarkable. The writing is amazing, uh, you know, and, and the characters are are. You know, like you, you really feel like you're, you're, you're you know, the characters are, are, are part of your part of your life, right? Uh, and you can see, you know, the the
1: like as as good as the marvelous Miss Maisel.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, I would say I would say so. I would say so. Wow, okay, uh, there's I'm something watch about uh, there's something you know. So like as a Jew, uh, you know, like the two big Jewish shows of the last few years, I would I loved mrs. Maisel, oh my God. but I like I this did even too, better. yeah because there's certain things about mrs Maisel, like every so often it would it would it would risk a kind of um kind of a preciousness right whereas the characters in um Stizzle, except for one character who you know even him the are cat
1: on, you're talking about the cat skills
2: one that yeah, was terrible yeah yeah the that Catskills was un, episode, almost unwatchable yeah i know i know almost unwatchable but the Stizzles, you know the Stizzle, uh they're all kind of so the main character who's the patriarch
0: is a bit of an asshole,
2: right? He's he's uh there are various times where you say okay, this is the point in the show where the the shark where ju- the you know jump, jumping the shark where you know like the crusty character reveals his deep down sort of goodness. But no, you know, he's basically just like a big patriarchal bully. He loves his he loves his family, he loves his kids, he loves but you know it's so hard for him to express that love in ways that aren't scripted by the religion. So it's both a sort of a loving depiction of the community, but also a, uh, a very, very fine-grained um, demonstration of how it scripts uh, people into roles that they just have a hard time escaping from, even as they see the ways in which, so, you know, it is, it is, uh, it is limiting them. That said, you know, the, the, it is clearly like tightly knit and tightly, you know, the whole, not just the family, but the whole community in ways, which, you know, made it seem almost like attractive, even for a, you know, a completely secularized Jew like me. But, so yeah, so, so going back to the thing about anxiety, so if it did turn out that you know we found that uh there were these patterns as you described them, that tightly knit religious communities have less uh, lesser prevalence of this, what then right do we impose amishness on the population <laughs> <laughs> or, you know it's 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 challenging to um you know uh sometimes. It turns out that some of the things that we, so, you know, a very similar, I'm doing research with a, with a colleague of mine, a very good friend of mine, and a colleague, um, very similar, you know, it turns out that um, higher rates of schizophrenia amongst, uh, in, in cities than in, in, in rural, uh, so in rural contexts, people haven't really figured out what's going on. Now, it looks like what, uh, one of the things that tends to immunize people a little bit from uh, this, these particular kinds of mental health problems is ghettoization, Right, So if you're an immigrant, you are four times more likely to develop um, various kinds of mental health disorders than if you are a local. But if you're in an immigrant ghetto, in an immigrant enclave, that, it goes way down. Now, we don't like enclaves, right? We multicultural, modern, you know, we like walking through Côte and, you know, having uh, 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 Filipino food for lunch and then stopping in at the Jewish uh, bakery for some, uh, you know, uh, some uh, strudel and uh, what have you. But it turns out that... um, at least with respect to this one thing seems that pretty robust evidence to suggest that homogeneous ethnic, ethnic enclaves are good for your mental health <laughs> um now that's challenging right that's very challenging what do we do um so you know uh i think we have to we have to figure out what it is that's going on i think that we then have to uh be ready for the possibility that we might not like what's going on because it pushes against some of our um, you know, some things about our society that we like, you know, uh, again, in this case, uh, if it turns out that, uh, that, uh, you know, having people be surrounded by people who are more like them, uh, you know, tells against a certain sort of facile, uh, truism that, you know, privileged people like us, you know, part of the cultural majority white males, uh, um, uh, have about multiculturalism, you know, and that sort of, um, Mixing is fine for for us because we never feel threatened by anything that's going on when mixing occurs. But what if it turns out that some people are literally harmed by it? Difficult, difficult question. Oh, it's uh,
1: very – it's very – I remember – what is her name? It was absolutely fascinating. She was a a sociologist, an (laughs) African-American sociologist uh, who wrote uh, things against desegregation – Right. In the nineteen in the nineteen fifties and sixties, and I was I, I heard her work cited in a book that I had read, just like an offhand reference to her. And so I went and read. Uh, I went to the Hopkins Library, and I found like all of her stuff, it's all out of print and everything. And i blanking on her names, anyway. But it was absolutely fascinating. She talked about how you know before desegregation, uh, there were these thriving black communities right. with. Like black businesses with black with like fully integrated communities that she had come out of one of these like all uh black towns in uh, in Florida, and that it was a wonderful, wonderful community that worked in so many ways, and she said now uh because of desegregation and this kind of forced like everybody has to mix because it's gonna make you mentally ill if you don't, and right. it's gonna you know and all this stuff. And she said it's it's had a lot of it's it's killed the black middle class in many ways. Now it's replaced the black middle class had been um, largely made up of like entrepreneurs, people like own their own stores and things like that. They were all replaced by big box kind of like white uh, white owned white like owned, businesses, yeah, yeah. and so now she said the middle class is primarily. People who are like working in government in some capacity, which makes them very, very sort of sensitive to anytime you get a more kind of conservative government that wants to, you know, elected and they want to shrink the size of government. Guess what? That's going to hit, yeah. disproportionately hit the African-American middle class yeah. more than any other. And so this is, it was much more sustainable when we had our own neighborhoods in right, our right, own, right. which is, it just blew well i had never heard that argument made that are right, especially right. being made by an african american right. woman uh who's a professional in the mid 20th century making this argument but it's you know the it's coming back a lot of these these arguments that are that were th- originally i mean like when we were younger it was only like really hardcore like charles taylor not charles taylor but um, Charles Murray, like the type people who were saying this, and they were considered to be very reactionary, yeah. sure, yeah, but yeah. it looks like maybe they weren't all wrong, right
2: well, I mean you know we, you have to you have to figure out how to how to you know if it turns out that a little bit less mixing is is good for the you have to ensure that uh you know the the the, the community if if our society is to be a quilt of More homogenous communities than perhaps we would like, that there not be the kinds of inequalities between these communities that, um, that you know, the the Murrays of the world seemed a little bit too happy to, uh, to, to, to countenance. But, um, you know, it could be, you know, the, the, the tragic thing is that it could be that there are certain things that are just beyond our policy reach, right? Uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a lot of this is very Durkheimian again, you know, um, uh a little religion is is turns out is good for 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 society- you know it's a, it's a civic glue uh, you know uh Rousseau understood it right uh yeah. civil and uh um you know um but how do you you know it's very difficult you know hegel said it right there's no ro- there's no road back from reflexivity right uh, <laughs> there may be no road back from uh secularization you know and so we have to find other ways of, um, of making those connections. Uh, you know, I can certainly see it. I, you know, I, I married into a family that was very, very, uh, uh, sort of connected, uh, to a church, you know, to the, to the Anglican church. And I can see, you know, as it's at the same time as the belief structure that is, you know, uh, that it's articulated around is one that I, you know, don't really understand how, but it, you know, the good that it does certainly that it did for my uh, for my, you know, this for my mother-in-law, for my uh, father-in-law when he was still alive, is palpable and probably measurable in terms of like, you know, years of quality life. You know, I mean, not, yeah. not some abstract thing. I'm sure that it is literally good for people. Uh, but you know, I mean, is that something that is still within our our our, our reach? You know, to recreate. Uh, there's a kind of you know, is there a kind of anomie, you know, to really go deep into the Durkheimian lexicon that is kind of written into the modern way of life and that we, it's its certainly difficult to see how, you know, we as a, you know, through the organs of the state, right, can recreate that. It's something that perhaps we as individuals and as uh, families can try to reckon with. But uh, we, you know, maybe one of the tragic conclusions that will come of this is that, you know, we have created a a, a social form that we have, we're going to have a hard time extricating ourselves from, but that have these, um, these pathological, you know, not just pathological at the level of, uh, you know, the sorts of things that we tend to think about the foods we eat and, uh, but also the way in which we have perhaps unwittingly, um, shorn ourselves of some of the protections that, uh, have immunized earlier generations from the kinds of things that we're seeing today.
1: Yeah, that's pretty. Well, I wanted to close with this. The yeah. the last time we the last time we talked, uh we were talking about sort of how the the decline of of liberalism and how right. all over all over the west, that all over the world. Um yeah, I, I want to sort of check in with you on that. I mean, yeah. it's just there's like what 10 provinces now run by conservative. It's like it's the the, the whole sort of SNC la like um, scandal looks like it's going to mean that uh, it may cost it may cost like Trudeau uh, the election. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure yeah, if it yeah, will because yeah, yeah. I think I think the problem the problem they have right now is that the in my opinion the the, the NDP and the Conservatives are have such weak leaders, yeah. unbelievably weak leaders yeah, yeah. that I think people are just gonna hold their doses and vote for Trudeau yeah, anyway
2: yeah I think I think I think that's probably right it doesn't take away from the it doesn't take away from the the problem because we won't always have the you know we won't always have the benefit of you know having a weak you know a weak conservative a weak populist uh, at the helm of the of the Conservative Party look I think you know since we last spoke uh, you know things have the, the, the sort of Dire- general direction that we talked about has been confirmed, uh, if nothing else. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm working on now, maybe it's something we could talk about at the next, next, next time we, we chat is, um, so there's clearly, you know, in the same way that we talked about anxiety, there's clearly a, there there, right? Something that's going on. There's, there's also something like, um, let's call it a majoritarian cultural anxiety, right? All over the world, there are people who, including in this place, right, uh, people who objectively have nothing to worry about. They're still the dominant group in their society. They're white Americans. They're French-Canadian Catholics. They're, you know, ethnic Hungarians. They're whatever, who are feeling threatened, right, who are feeling threatened by something. And one of the things that – so, you know, um, if you think about the Trump Clinton election as the emblematic moment in this right you think about that moment when uh that that phrase that uh, of clinton's the basket of deplorables right mm-hmm. as uh, liberal intellectuals we have a tendency to uh dismiss right the concerns of uh, anxious majorities as beneath contempt and therefore to leave them entirely to the in the hands of uh, right wing populists who are ready with their facile explanations and uh, uh, cures for their woes. Look, it's the immigrants, right? Uh, the immigrants are taking your jobs, uh, and by the way, the immigrants are are, content, are have are heaping contempt on your culture, right? Um, it's the it's the deracinated elites, you know, uh, uh, things like that. So, I think that one of the tasks that we have to look. Um, Minorities have to contend with majorities, but majorities in small countries like Hungary, like, you know, uh, uh, Quebec, uh, like other places are not exactly in positions of great cultural resilience with respect to forces that are occurring globally. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been reading a lot recently on um, the disappearance, the, the way in which uh, AI robotization is going to uh, drive, a, you know, just drive a complete, you know, uh, cut out. Anywhere from ten to forty percent of the jobs in in the economy, right? Uh, yeah,
1: and and the kind of people that are going to get cut are lawyers. Like if doctors. you look at uh, you look at well, it's all over it's all over the place, but you look at like for instance in the United States, the the sort of places that voted really heavily for for Trump, a lot of like hardcore red states, the typical like white guy in his 50s works in trucking yeah. right it's like a huge section and those are all going to the be replaced yeah. right it's, so it's specifically there's a lot of yeah. people who are going to be no longer needed yeah. like it won't be like that they're unemployed they're going to be just there's no jobs for right. them right right and that's going to be we Really don't know what to do. Well, about so, that. and
2: and we haven't really given it. You know, the 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 liberal intelligentsia of which I consider myself to be a card carrying member have not really given enough thought to. You know, if we cared about as we ought, as we must as we as we as we ought care about minorities who find themselves in the grips of you know the majoritarian uh, pressures that. Tyranny of the majority. Tyranny of the majority. Yeah. We should also at least, you know, listen to see whether there's anything that needs to uh, be given e- equivalent care in the fears of uh, cultural majorities who look at global processes, globalization, the offshoring of jobs, right? The automation of jobs, uh the rise of, um, you know, the rise of global English, right? Uh, if you're a small, small sort of linguistic group, and you look at uh, the way in which, uh, you know, in the metros of just about every city in the world, uh, learn English as a key to, you know, and you look at your little language spoken by a million people. I was just in Latvia a few a few weeks ago, a language which has a sovereign state, you know, around it, but it's only a million point four people, um, yeah, one point four million people. Um, you know, um, you can very well imagine that it's going to get caught in these global processes that are going to make it the case that at a certain point, it'll just make more sense for business and, uh, science and, um, you know, to, to be done in, in English. So there are all these things going on, which are to majorities like majoritarian processes are to minorities. And I think it's worth at least a little bit of our intellectual sweat, uh, you know, to figure out how we can develop, A discourse to address these fears and concerns that isn't the right-wing populist. It's all the fault of the immigrants. It's all the fault of the deracinated elites. You know, follow the great leader, and uh, all will be well. You know, I don't know what those solutions are, um, but um, you know, uh, I'm presenting a paper in uh, in a conference uh, uh, in in a few weeks where me and a postdoc are writing a paper on you know we're 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 both very interested in global linguistic vulnerability right the fact that according to the sociolinguists of the world you know like 40% of the languages of the world are are under threat uh, including some that you wouldn't have thought right that are that are that have the the, board, the that have the control of a small state um you know uh, what what could we do at the level of international institutions in order to effectively kind of allay that uh, concern that people might legitimately have that, uh, though a majority locally, they are still in the grips of uh, processes that are well beyond their control that might actually have a terribly corrosive uh, impact on their on their culture. So I think I think uh, there's an agenda there uh, for uh, for thinking, and we certainly certainly can't afford uh, to leave that whole constituency, uh, up for, you know, uh the the Trumps and the 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 Farages and the Orbans. Um, you know, we have to come up with something that uh that, that that responds to those aspects of their claims that do perhaps have some degree of legitimacy. And uh, you know, for starters not referring to them as baskets of deplorables, <laughs> even though we might want to sometimes.
1: Well I mean Annalisa gets this at, at you know, environmental conferences all the time, climate change stuff. Because right. she always, she's always sort of the voice crying in the wilderness, always uh, the person on the panel saying, "What you know, if we're going to put in, let's say, like a carbon tax, you do realize that poor people, on average, they can't afford to live in the plateau. They can't afford to live close to work, so they're traveling far distances right. in cars. Yeah. Usually, they're living places that are not very well served yeah, by yeah, public yeah, yeah. transportation." So if you put in something like that it's disproportionately going to hurt them cuz right. they can't afford to buy like a prius and stuff like that. And if you disproportionately hurt uh, hurt them, they're going to elect people like Doug Ford. They're going right. to elect who are who are listening to them and saying like these people are trying to screw you over right. like and it's so it's you have to somehow if you're going to come up with something like that, you have to write at the beginning, say we're going to give a special allowance for people who travel more than this, you know, to work every day, yeah. or something like that. We're going to put something in yeah. place, right? Because if you don't, they're yeah. you know, right. they're going to elect a government that's going to basically just GoPro. eliminate the yeah. climate change uh, yeah. plan, yeah, like so. And it's it's very it's very inept, and, yeah. and there's this idea that somehow you can just get people to do what you want by, like, finger wagging and, like, That's right. and shaming. That's right. I mean, and, we,
2: we just we just saw, uh, you know, um, somebody who I have very mixed feelings about, and I mean that in the literal sense of the word, you know, mixed feelings about basically jump out of the whole political, uh, the mayor of the plateau, uh, Ferrandez, right? Uh, because he, at the end of the day, just couldn't bear the idea that um, you actually have to bring people along with you. Um, you know, I mean, he actually said at certain point, we're going to need some kind of, uh, environmental authoritarianism, you know, uh, which may not be wrong, but I'm going to try to figure out whether we can't do it democratically in the first instance. And that might mean, uh, that you're absolutely right. A certain kind of, a certain kind of compromise, harm reduction. We're right back to the, uh, to the, to the beginning, right? There are people in our society who are... We've built society, we've built our cities in such a way that it's not their fault, right? They are uh, trapped in um, a car uh, economy. And um, and to then tell them, oh, by the way, you know, the cities that we've built and the way in which we've organized the, the residential patterns and pricing and everything uh, makes it the case that you can only live over there. And now we're going to charge you an extra whatever to get to your job, um, that's probably not the, you know, you may end up in a situation that's far worse than the one that you're uh, trying to get out of because, yeah, there are always people who are willing to uh, cater to, the, to their worst instincts.
1: Yeah. What, what is the name of the guy? He wrote uh, The End of History. Fukuyama. Fukuyama. So Fukuyama's new book, Identity. I oh, remember I, yeah. I read that um, a couple months ago. And he says that we live right now in, in what he calls a vetocracy. Like where people like veto, like where, you know, interested, special interested minorities, minority groups right. can basically block things from happening. Right. And he says that the stuff that we need to do to address problems like like systematic, like climate change, automation, things like that, they require like really sort of serious, like like long term planning. And he said, basically, uh, who do you think is going to be better at doing that? The United States or China? You know, obviously, like China will be. And that's creepy because if you like democracy in the open society. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, you know, there are well-known problems that have been, you know, already pointed out by democratic theorists 30 or 40 years ago. You know, uh, elections are great, um, but if they happen every four years, that means the politicians are going to be naturally trained to think about problems as – you know, four, two, three year, uh, you know, don't tell me about a policy that will only, um, reap benefits from in 10 years because I've got to face the electorate in four. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, China doesn't have to worry about that. Um, and, uh, you know, what do we do? Uh, what do we do about that is, 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 It's. (laughs) Very very difficult.
1: <laughs> well, let, let's leave it on that dark note. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, thank you so much for That's coming on the podcast, and we'll uh, again, we definitely, we definitely will. So, all right, thank you.